15 years ago, you know, the mobile networks was completely core centric. Everything yeah. went back to the center. Everything had to go back Everything to the center. Everything you did again. went back to the center of the network. And that, that's, you know, the whole 5G architecture <coughs> is much more distributed so that things, you know, things can happen much closer to the subscriber. Um, you know, there isn't, there is still a core network, but it's, but it's, it's, so is that one of the really significant things about 5G is that the architecture enables this, this, this uh, distribution of the workload? Uh, yeah, I guess it, it is. I mean, you still, you know, the, the classic example of a, of a comms network where you've got the forwarding plane with the packets, you know, moving between, between devices or between devices and servers is still there, and the control plane is still there, which is controlling what's going on. Um, but but you know fundamentally everything's moving moving out to be much more distributed and and uh, and, and the networking because I mean obviously we're a networking vendor the networking is becoming much more distributed mm. you know, everything's connected to everything. Hello and welcome to another telecoms.com podcast. The second one we've managed in the studio because uh, Ian's buddy's striking, haven't done it. Although we've got we've got one scheduled to record on the third of February, and apparently they're going to strike then. So we're going to have to see how that goes. And um, we've got a guest scheduled for that one as well. Um, um, so I should mention the one we've got here. So yes, having said that, um, before I go any further, I should welcome our very special guest, Colin Evans from Juniper Networks. As Thank opposed you. to Juniper Research or yeah. Jupiter Networks. J- Jupiter Networks. Yeah, don't, don't, Jupiter don't, Networks? My, my CFO will kill me if you call it Jupiter Right, Network. no, I think people just... <laughs> my just my CMO, sorry, I should yeah. say. But. Yeah. We should start a company called Jupiter Networks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so welcome, Colin. Great to have you Thank here. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Thanks for the beer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's well, the first, first interview I've ever done with beer, but there you go. Well, exactly. Yeah, I mean, this I understand... an interview. Uh, oh, okay. I, I understand that, um, that when you were advised to bring a beer by whoever, you thought that was a joke. I did. I, I thought it was just like, you know, yeah, you yeah. Know, it's Friday afternoon. Who wants a beer? Of course. Yeah, yeah. Why not? So, no. This, and this you've, you've delivered me some lovely beer as well, which, yeah, well, which we won't advertise, but. No, it's fine. It's one, yeah, of, my it's, fa- it's one of my favorite brands. Yeah, they're not popular anymore, we, are they, apparently, in, uh, in, the, in the wider world? No, it was cause, is it because of some of the stunts they've been up to? This is Brewdog we're talking about. Yeah, don't they have a reputation for treating staff badly. Oh, is it? Stuff? And yeah, it's been so I've got, we've got mainly Brewdog, but I've got a, I think Beaver Town's very much equivalent to Brewdog for me. I've got a neck oil to start off with, just because it was in the fridge. Yeah. Are they all right? It's Logan Plant. It's Robert Plant's Robert son. Is he Plant's all right? Son, yeah, I forgot that he yeah, was the, he's, the he's all right. He hasn't been mistreating people, but... Not that I've heard of. No. Well, we should, we should stress those uh, allegations you're passing on <laughs> rather than any ones we're making ourselves about Mr. Brewdog. Who, uh, regardless of how he treats his staff, knows how to turn out a pale ale. So fair play mm-hmm. to him. And if that and an IPA, yeah, exactly. A very nice IPA. So it's all good. Um, so uh, yeah, so yeah. Last week we we sort of broke. Well, I broke my sort of dry January last week, and then he and I went for a, just a, a Nando's, and um, we went for a couple of pints after, mm. or maybe more like four. I think we had a- couple of pints before the Nando's. Couple of pints, uh, uh, yeah, and then the Nando's. A couple of bottles of wine. A couple of bottles of wine. We basically had a bottle of wine each. And, and then the next day, we both felt like utter shit. That was one of the worst hangovers I've had for ages. Yeah. I was putting it down partly just to being out of practice. Even two weeks of not drinking, I thought maybe my liver was a bit of a shock to the system. But I think... I've, I think from now on, if we go to Nando's, which I'm happy to do, let's just <laughs> let's just stick on a beer or water, yeah? Yeah. Or, or maybe just one bottle of wine. Not no, just no bottles. I think mixing doesn't help. Yeah. I mean, this, this is, I'm not the first person to realise this. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was because I, I didn't even feel that mashed when I got home. The, the, the level of hangover I had on Saturday compared to how pissed I thought I was on Friday seemed disproportionate. <coughs> yeah. 
so there, and, and you're the worst one. Even when we had one bottle of wine, I'm ready to call it a night, and you were going, "Go on, I'll get another." <laughs> so we can we're we're sort of mutual enablers. So uh, yeah, so that's that. I don't think there's a lot else to reflect on. Nice day, cold but clear today. I quite like those crisp winter days. It's nice when we're up here on the fifteenth floor of this. Um, corporate well, i don't really like it when i'm sitting at home working and i've no. got heating turned off because i don't want to spend <clears throat> i know quid a month and you've got about four layers on and it's freezes so yeah being in the office is nice actually mm. it's a reason to come in yeah don't like don't say that someone someone further up food chain might hear that and go right you're coming in all the time then and it's always your feet that get cold when you're sitting at your desk yeah feet feet and hands and I, I'm, even, hands, I'm even yeah. using fingerless gloves sometimes mm. and your nose those. you well, can sort of you feel really don't turn the heater yeah. on do you mm. um well, it feels, especially if the rest of the family are out, it feels a bit no, of a piss take to have the heat. Because I don't normally work in the office, and this week I've done a lot uh, in the office. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I'm amazed how busy the office is. We should give her a shout out. You, you've got a new uh, colleague on Light Reading. Got a new colleague, uh, Teresa, who's just started this week. Cool. So, uh, obviously, it's easy to sort of show someone the ropes in person rather than Indeed. doing it on Zoom, uh, hence being in a lot. But normally, you know, we'd only be in on Fridays, yeah, yeah. you and I. And it's just that whole talking the pandemic of the new normal turned out to be a lot of rubbish actually didn't it really i mean and getting on the trains as well it's incredibly busy coming in from Earlsfield every day of the week except today and yeah i hate that it's only friday that's quiet in offices really i think maybe monday's not quite as busy mm. but offices. i can get a desk we were like on a different floor every day and yet, and yet Friday it's dead. Isn't that weird? Friday's dead. So it must be an informal thing where there's a sort of, at least an unspoken, yeah, fair work from home on a Friday if you want. Well, I think it's become, for a lot of companies, it's become you will spend three or four days in and, you, you know, you can have one or two days at home, hasn't it? And I think the the big US tech companies have actually started to enforce it a bit, haven't they? Mm. Like, oh, yeah, definitely. You know, Do you know one so. thing I'd think about that? Because we don't have that. We No one obliged us to come in ever. We we come into for the podcast mainly because we think it's much better, especially if we've got a guest like Colin to to be face to face with them because you get the non-verbal cues and the sort of social interaction, and all that. Um, but I wonder if people are just gone. All right, you got to come in except Friday. Does that mean that they're really dossy on a Friday to sort of compensate? I bet there's some. I don't know because because there was a worry, wasn't there, among employer employers about people just dossing generally during the pandemic. You know, if you're not at work in the I mean, it depends what people's jobs are like, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. But if I like our job, produce, you can see if we're doing nothing. If I didn't produce there's... content, Phil at some point would go, what are you doing during the day? So you can't, really, you can't really, you can't really, yeah, where's the content? You can't really hide, can you? Where's the content um, content, bloke? And presumably that's the same with most jobs. You've got to have something to show for it at the end of the day. If, you, if your sales, you know, channel's going really well, who what, cares? What do we call ourselves knowledge desk? workers? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we have, well, to, we, have to, we have to deliver some knowledge. Yeah, exactly. I've had us referred to as the desktop class as well. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, um, so laptop, sorry, not desktop, laptop. Um, okay, cool. Well, I'll, I'll stop talking shit because I've run out of shit to talk. Um, so yeah, what we're going to talk about today? So we're going to obviously, whenever we have a guest, we we have the the bulk of the podcast, certainly the front end of it, just talking about stuff that's their core area. In fact, one of the things I'm going to ask Colin about in a minute is what exactly Juniper's core area is, because I've got to admit, despite having been a telecoms journalist for years, <laughs> I'm not that sure. So that's my bad. Sorry, Juniper people. I've only been here 11 years. Maybe I haven't come right, well, worked see. it out yet. But <laughs> yeah. Hopefully I have. Um, well, you're, you're about to be tested on that. Um, <laughs> and then and then we'll, we'll see where that takes us. I think we'll just have a general, because I, I know enough about Juniper to know it's involved in quite a lot of areas of telecoms telecoms sort of ecosystem so i think we'll have a general meander about that it's bound to involve things like sort of 5g um and and what the point of that is and then in terms of news i mean i think this week the only 
really sort of newsy thing that springs to mind is was today, which was uh, Ericsson's quarterlies and full year numbers. Uh, and that's interesting <coughs> to have a little look at Ericsson. And, and, and Colin, you're welcome to talk as much or as little about named mm-hmm. other members of the telecom world as you want. We understand that people here can't be just going around just talking on record about people they might do business with or compete with. Um, so that's fine. But I think we'll also perhaps give you a chance to, to get involved, just to see what we think the Ericsson thing says about the broader environment in which we're in. So hopefully we'll get around to that. Although last week we just stayed on the main topic and just banged on about that for two hours, didn't we? Mm. So, um, so yeah, having, having said all that preamble, why, why don't I just start quickly, Colin, why don't you just remind me and anyone in our audience who's as ignorant as I am, mm-hmm. what it is, apart from the fact that I suspect <coughs> you might say the clue's in the name, I might, because you, you've heard me say it before. I've already warned him that if he says it too often, I'll start taking the piss. Well, they make um, gin. Yeah, yeah. I wish we did, because then um, I might get some cheap product. Indeed, whereas now you just get some cheap networking gear, maybe. So, yeah, Juniper Networks, in a nutshell, what's it all about? Yeah, I know, I know the, the clue is absolutely in the name. So, you know, we, we are a you know one of the leading vendors of, of high-end routers, switches, and, and security devices. Um, so obviously we we work across a couple of different segments. We obviously the part I work in is a service provider business. Yeah. But we're also you know a big supplier to to enterprises as well. Right. Large large enterprise, but you know also also medium and small enterprise as well um, directly. And uh, we also supply a lot to to the major cloud providers. You know the big yeah. four, five, six, however you were you want to count it, large cloud providers. You know we're we're, we're major suppliers to them in terms of infrastructure. Um, but yeah, you know uh, layer three routing. Uh, layer two and layer three switching, and and also you know all the way up to layer seven seven security devices, do you know what all both those, physical those, and v- virtual. Do you know what all those well, layers no, mean? To uh, to some extent, but I won't be able to explain oh, them. Okay. Like, right. no, but I was, I was going to ask. Yeah, I know. I know the OSI stuff just about, but it's generally when I'm sort of running about open RAN that I kind of start delving into all of that mm. and looking at what the different uh, chips do. And um, we move packets about. That's, yeah, we, we we deal with big thorny packet problems. I mean, we're good at we're good at particularly at IP. So. I was going to, because a lot of people, when they think of internet routers and switches, still think of probably Cisco, which I guess is, you know, the the biggest. And I remember Juniper kind of coming along mm-hmm. and being quite disruptive at first. And, yep. But, um, and they're still viewed as the two, I think when, whenever people think of that market, they would probably think of those two companies I first mean, we, of all, we, we would also, you know, we would also uh, credit credit Nokia as well. Nokia, Nokia, yeah, Nokia's, Nokia's also yeah. one of our key competitors in the routing but, space and, and also our, our, our Chinese uh, our Chinese competitor, yeah, whose, whose name I won't mention, but everyone can guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, but do you see the market sort of <clears throat> changing a lot, you know, in the last few years? And there's been a lot of talk about the impact of virtualization and white boxes and this kind of thing. And I know that this, these topics always come up whenever people talk mm. about Juniper and, and routers and switches. And I'm just kind of keen to get a sense because from my perspective, it's still Cisco and Juniper and the ones you've mentioned, it's still those guys. Yep. And a lot of this talk about these disruptive technologies and how they might pose a, a sort of challenge to those established players. I, I don't know. It doesn't seem to have happened or... Um, well, I mean, you can you can you can run routing routing on a you know on an x86 server. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, and we do it. We have a you know we have a virtualized router that runs on an x86, but the performance is significantly lower than you'd get from sort of dedicated devices. Yeah. So um, you know, although it's possible to spin up a a virtual router in you know inside Amazon Web Services, which you know we can we we've been able to do for a number of years, you know the performance of that router is quite quite low. 
Yeah, but um, it's, it's a similar conversation to the one that's going on with, I mean, it's not strictly open RAN, it's more sort of VRAN or cloud RAN, but that yeah. using, you know, general purpose processes to yep. do it. And then the, the Ericsson's and the Nokia's of this world would say, well, it's not as good as using customized silicon. And you kind of think, well, if we look at, because this has been a topic of conversation for a lot longer, I think, in the market yep. that, that Juniper's in. And yeah, mm-hmm. it doesn't, you know, you'd still see most of the market being on the kind of traditional gear, and and, and there hasn't been this wave of players that have come through and, and toppled Cisco and toppled Juniper, for instance. It's more that you've adapted to the the demand that there is for that stuff, and there's still a lot of people who want the old ways of doing things. You know, well, the old ways of doing things, to be honest, are the only ones at scale because you know the yep. amount of traffic that we're pushing through the network at the moment requires dedicated, optimized devices to do that. You know, you can. You know, as we said, you can you can build on uh, you know uh, virtualized or even containerized devices on on x86 based servers. You know, using uh, processes from from the likes of Intel, of course. Um, but I mean, you know, the performance of as I said, the performance of those is is relatively relatively low compared to the yeah. to the dedicated devices. And, and would you actually so does Juniper actually design its own sort of its own silicon? Yes. or you'd work with yeah, we, it does. We, we, yeah. we do our own silicon. We also work with Broadcom yep. in a few use cases as well because you know Broadcom's uh, uh, switching and uh, routing <laughs> silicon is uh, is is really good as well. Um, and you know, obviously, we run our own software on top of that silicon to to get some value out of it. But we use that for kind of our, you know, our, our packet packet throughput. If you want the uh, the forwarding plane, yeah. And then we we build our own software around it. But you know, we've always kind of said, well, you know, we are a um, you know we are a software company because you know ninety five percent of our of our design engineers are all working on software. You know, only five percent of them are working on hardware. Yeah. Um, so you know, you know, a lot of the value is in the software that we bring, and all of the the intelligence in our devices is all in the software. Yeah. So um, yeah, but but I mean, the the disruption that's that's kind of happening is people people assume that if you, you used you know generic devices, you could uh, you know you could vastly reduce the cost of these things. But obviously, you know that that still requires the software there to drive to drive the devices. Well, so even I've always found that argument in a way though a bit, you know. It's one of those things that gets said and people sort of take it at face value and then you go away and you start to think about it and it's like, well, why would... Okay, a general purpose device is obviously something that you can sell in large quantities and they get used for mm. lots of different things, but if it's not optimised for a particular purpose and there's, there's a kind of a, a trade-off, isn't there? And the... You know, they're, they're not considered to be particularly energy efficient, for, for instance, mm. I've heard, you know, when you, when you try and use them for, for networking purposes, certainly in the kind of um, RAN context... Um, the cost savings argument. I know. I know some people kind of question it. Really, whether whether well, you the, would say. My money. understanding of the cost saving argument is as much the 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 broad conceptual <clears throat> increase of competition. That's one of the, one of the ways in which we've chatted a lot, and you've been you've been very sharp on it. Is in principle, you know, as a as a sort of from a economic theory point of view, more competition should equal lower prices. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but in practice, as as you've pointed out, that is is that increasing competition a bit of a mirage? Um, you know, if you're you're still relying on on one sort of system integrator supplier to bundle all these new people together. Yeah, it's not so much that though. I mean, I get if, if this had brought more players into the market, and yeah, you do expect then that to, I suppose to drive prices down because you've got more, you know more people trying to win, win business. But there just seems to be this assumption that general purpose processes in and of themselves are lower cost than customized and you know i know i know 
um, I don't want to put words in their mouth really, but I have talked to people at the equipment, the big sort of mobile equipment vendors, and there's a sort of they question that because they would say, "Well, we're selling stuff at massive scale, obviously as well, and it's and it's mm. focused on doing one particular thing. Mm. It's incredibly energy efficient compared to using x86. Why would why would buying an x86 yeah, yeah. be and running that? Yeah, and be as Colin just said, cost? that there are there are performance trade offs as well. Yeah. So yeah, it, I, I've I've yet to be convinced, as I think you, that <clears> by those arguments, but they're not going to go away. Yeah, but it, no, it's just in, interesting looking at a market where virtualization and 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 similar things have been discussed for longer than they have in the radio yeah, access network. You know, to sort of see, can we read anything from that? Yeah, we, into... we tend to we tend to virtualize routers in places in the network where they're what I would call transient, i.e., they you know you spin them up for a few hours because you want to do a particular use case or an application, and then you you tear it down again. Yeah, I mean, the good thing is they're really good for that. Yeah, that you you can you can spin up you know m- multiple of them if you want, um, but where you've got you know enough traffic in the network to to justify a dedicated device. At some sort of hub point in your network, it makes sense to use a an optimized routing platform. I mean, the, the thing around you know x86 is when is x86 not x86? I mean, uh, and you know the way that x86 is evolving now with these whole things called SmartNICs, which is the you know the network interface cards that we're putting in the them. accelerator. It, yeah, yeah. Is, is we're almost building out a sort of a mini router on a SmartNIC, yeah. um, which which kind of off offloads the processor in the x86 for doing forwarding yeah and that, that's essentially what smart mix is doing and yeah. they're, they're, so you're they, kind of building a little switch into into your x86 device but they almost make it not virtualized then don't they because it, it is, then you're yeah. dedicating something towards a specific function but so. the control pl- the the forwarding plane is still is still physical on the smart mix and the, yeah. the the control plane that you're using to actually do the the smart of the forwarding is then still running in the x86 yeah, yeah. on one of the cores. SmartNIC sounds like a sort of nicer way of calling it's, someone a smart. Is it network interface yeah. card? Network yeah. interface yeah. card. Um, that may be, that may be a good brand name to to for one actually. Yeah, the smart ass smart SmartNIC. Yeah. <laughs> um, just take you just take you one step back from that. Um, just just thinking about sort of emerging technological trends. We were talking a bit beforehand um, about 5G in general, which obviously uh, the, uh, the sort of overarching technological trend in, in telecoms. But I was just thinking what you know what you've just described about what what uh, Juniper Networks gets involved with, um, and you said sort of data centres, mm-hmm. and you know, am I right in saying that where the data centre world um, and the telecoms world may have been more discreet and distinct from each other in the past. Uh, the, that Venn diagram is overlapping more and more, <laughs> Absolutely. especially when it comes to the edge. What, so we hear a lot about edge networking and why that's where things are headed. Can you just give us like a top line before we drill down into it, what, what the point of edge networking is and why, why everyone gets so excited about it? Well, I guess the edge is always where the applications were delivered or the, the services were delivered. And I, I kind of the thing that we, we're seeing is that the edge is moving closer towards the end user. Right. Essentially, you know, it's moving, being the edge of the you know, core network and then and then an edge network and then a whole bunch of access stuff. I think the edge is moving more and more into. So if we picture area. it as like a like a sort of solar system where the core yeah. network's the sun and Absolutely. and the edge is getting more sort of further and further yeah. away. And yeah. Your, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's concentric circles, isn't it? So yeah, and and then obviously us as subscribers sitting at home are connected connected right out at the edge of the network on our. And why do we want to be? Why do we care? 
why do we care? Well, performance, performance and latency, I guess, is, is right. the most important thing to, you know, the, the performance we get from whatever we're doing, whether it's watching video, which is the biggest, by far the biggest bandwidth consumer in the network, or, you know, doing a, you know, retail transaction or, or you know, doing a, a, a Skype call with... Like, why, is Skype, Skype, why is performance Skype? Skype. Skype's better? a bit old, old hat, isn't it? But yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, video call with, uh, with Skype's with owned a, by Microsoft. Is that right now? Or yeah, they bought it. Yeah, they bought yeah, it a yeah, decade yeah, or so ago. I don't think I don't think it's been called Skype for a long no, time. So. No, no. Shows, shows much been, my age again. I think now. all the Skype stuff's <laughs> been uh, incorporated into it's Teams, teams yeah, basically. Yeah. Voip is what you're saying, and that also feels like an anachronistic term, doesn't it? It is, yeah. But you know, like yeah. So voice isn't voice anymore. I mean, who who really makes a voice call anymore? Yeah. Hardly any of us. You know, I, I, most of my voice calls are probably on Teams or on on uh, on WhatsApp audio these days. So yeah. uh, you know, very rarely actually, you know, make a mobile to mobile call. I know that was that was a sort of disruptive trend that, that hit telecoms. You know, I, I'm old enough to remember when they charged for minutes and mm. yeah. and even charged for texts. Yeah. yeah. And now no one does text or and, uh, normal voice calls. The MMS, remember? The thing that never worked. Multimedia messaging Some companies have stopped those, haven't they? I still get them from AE, who's my mobile <laughs> supplier. They send me MMSs, and you have to sort of accept them. They, if you and send that's so that they can, that's so they can try and flog me a Galaxy. Yeah, well, if you, if you send an MMS, it costs a fortune. Mm. Mm. Especially if you're roaming abroad. If you roam abroad and send one, you're yeah. in real trouble. I know, I've had that with uh, my kids sometimes when they don't know what they're doing and they try and send some image over. Yeah, and it's like, like pixelated. E, here's, here's one of the reasons why WhatsApp's taken off, because you charge me mm. £2 to send one when I'm in Spain or whatever. So. This is a complete tangent. I think I saw... God, I can't remember who it was. No, it's got, someone someone was, was it Mavenir, was writing off a ton of business to do with RCS. Right. Was it Mavenir? Sorry if it wasn't Mavenir. It doesn't really matter who it was, but I saw some bit of news that we didn't write up that one company has basically just sort of given up on rich, rich, uh, RTS, is it? RCS. Oh, RCS, rich, rich communications. communications so, yeah. yeah um, which was supposed to be the sort of uh, evolution of, of SMS, wasn't it? And, and uh, yeah, people like GSMA have been flogging it for decades. Yeah. Anyway, I just thought it was poignant that this company, whether it was Mavenue or someone else, sort of throwing in the towel seemed like a sort of inflection point where like, they're going, oh, do you know what? Fuck it. It's a waste of time. Yeah. Anyway. Well, this industry is full of graveyard technologies that yes. to change all our lives and never actually happened, doesn't it? Well, yeah. So, so, that, so that brings us back <clears throat> to my sort of more journalistic argumentative point about things like Edge. So why why is performance better? I mean, I sort of know the answer, but I, I want someone who's more expert than I am to explain it. I guess, why is well, I, guess I guess you know if you if you think back ten fifteen years ago, you know the mobile network was completely core centric. Everything yeah. went back to the center. Everything had to go back. Everything to the that you did went back to the center of the network, and that that's you know the whole five G architecture <laughs> is much more distributed, so that things you know things can happen much closer to the subscriber. Um, you know, there isn't, there is still a core network, but it's, but it's. it's so is that one of the really significant things about five G? Is that the architecture enables this, this, this uh, distribution of the workload? Uh, yeah, I guess it, it is. I mean, you still, you know, the the classic example of a of a comms network where you've got the forwarding plane with the packets, and, you know, moving between between devices or between devices and servers is still there, and the control plane is still there, which is controlling what's going on. Um, but but you know fundamentally everything's moving moving out to be much more distributed and and uh, and, and the networking because I mean obviously we're a networking vendor the networking is becoming much more distributed mm. you know, everything's connected to everything using an IP fabric or, or call, the, call it whatever you will but we call it an IP fabric which is kind of a you know 
everything is connected to everything else uh, from a packet perspective. And it's the ultimate relevance of this. I remember, I think you were there years ago. I was at a, an Omdia thing. It might even be when it was called Ovum. And Marcus Weldon, who was the Bell Labs guy, used to be at Nokia, um, was talking about the significance of the edge just purely from a, from a point of view of distance. Mm. Um, in so much as the speed of light is still a defined speed. And if if a if a packet has to go ten, on a 10 miles round trip, it's going to take a little bit longer yeah. than something's got. Is, is that a long and short of it? it, it, it from, a, from a latency perspective, therefore, you know, the, the response you get from whatever the application you're using is that that's, that's still definitely a constraint. But, I mean, you know, you, you, you look at, you know, what I do every day, which is I have Teams calls with my colleagues in California, and, you know, the latency is virtually zero because, you know, the speed of light, does does allow the packet to get there extremely quickly, but mm, it's yeah. uh, you know it is it is still definitely a constraint. But I think more that you know as you distribute these things f- closer to the users, the performance fundamentally improves simply because you know you don't have that round trip delay. That's particularly important, I think, in 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 five G for low latency applications. I mean, what were we talking about before? Things like you know self driving, yeah, uh, cars and uh, but, things. But a things lot of these like things e adverts. Yeah, e adverts. Yeah. A lot of these things aren't there yet, are they? That's no. the thing. And I, and, and I'm, I'm kind of wondering, you know, if you talk to operators who are maybe sceptical of of making edge investments and you know, maybe they're in quite small markets anyway. It seems like the edge perhaps has more relevance to some extent in a really big country like, you know, mm. like the US, where you could be a really long way away from a, a data center. If you've got four operators that have built out some infrastructure in somewhere like the UK, then, mm. you know, and you're talking about you're talking about hundreds of miles at most, a couple of hundred rather than thousands. And, you know, you, you, you speak to the operators here and they're, they're kind of like, well, we can, you know, with the network we've got today, we can get down to below 30, 40 milliseconds, and we don't really see that there's anything on the horizon that requires less than that. Is that, is it a bit chicken and egg, you know, kind of waiting for the applications to come along before they're going to do anything? Or Yeah, I mean, what, uh, what have we always called them? Killer applications, which is always a terrible term. But yeah, I think if we, <laughs> if we, um, you know, probably probably doesn't lend itself well to what was it we were talking about remote surgery. So well, that being a killer application, well, a different yeah. type of but, killer um, application. Yeah. So um, oh, it does when I start going on about the Terminator, <laughs> which, I, which I always do. Uh, yeah, but I, th- I think it's the it's the uh, it's the applications themselves that um, you know ultimately d- determine what what performance they need. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, if we if we can reduce that latency from the user to whatever application it is they're using all the better and sometimes we're, you know we're caching these applications closer to the user by building these micro mini data centers for closer to the user in, inside the network but do you, but do you see because I'm, I'm guessing in the work that you do in trials or something or in collaborations with you know other other vendors from different parts of the market that you, you're probably you're probably testing out some some applications and looking at what's needed and what might be needed i mean are there any you just mentioned one that's kind of a bit hackneyed now, the, yeah. the kind of, you know, the, the, the surgery and the self-driving cars, the other one, and they've been talked about for a long time. But are there other things that are, are kind of on the horizon or that we might see? Well, I, I guess the, the, the interesting one I was looking at the other day was, was uh, you know, kind of a more of a, a, a virtual... <laughs> 
a virtual reality, augmented reality type of application where you right. know, someone's on a building site and they're, you know, they're they're looking at the they're, they're looking at the building that they're building and they've they've got some sort of augmented reality which is overlaid on top of it, showing them, you know, where all the pipework's going to run or something like that, right. even on a okay. building that's not con- not fully constructed yet. Yeah, and those yeah, kind I of things that using like smart, so can, uh, smart devices and things like that, those kind of applications would require low latency and and you know. Uh, and would absolutely be relevant for 5G because if you're on a construction site, you know you probably haven't got decent networking other than 5G. So if we end up with a metaverse and everybody's walking around with connected yeah. glasses or whatever, then we really do need. Yeah, or we all just stay, we, all, we all just stay at home and live in virtual reality. I don't know. Well, we've that's had, probably we've, not a great thing either. But. We normally have that chat because when, when we're getting on to, <clears throat> yeah, I, I think I speak for in here. We've we've always felt that for the past five years, the telecom industry has been kind of reaching for for what a better term, killer use cases for mm. um, for 5G. And one of the ones in incoming um, marketing and PR that we get is is sort of VR, AR, XR, whatever it are. Mm. Um, and we've always gone, well, VR, that's just bollocks, isn't it? Because you're only ever going to use VR in, in an extremely safe, constrained environment because you're utterly vulnerable and, and sensory deprived for, with respect to the real world. But augmented reality... You know, if we have that kind of low latency and total reliability of of, of connection, you know, and then we talk about the metaverse, and the metaverse in its first iteration will be this sort of absurd Mark Zuckerberg thing where you've got some avatar, and no one, no one who's got a life and who likes to go down the pub every now and then mm. is going to live their life in this in this metaverse. But you'll be surprised. Well, well maybe you, you haven't. You know, maybe you hang around with a few teenagers and. Um, yeah, maybe that's like it. The, well, uh, it's just like the iPad. It's never going to work. Being, is it? Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite misses in the past. Um, I'd say it's just a big iPod. What's the fucking point? Um, well, but, actually, though, you're not a million miles wrong. It hasn't. The sales have gone down quite a lot of iPads yeah, recently. Yeah. It's not like, but, it's not like a everyone hit like has, the iPhone. but not enough to justify how, how dismissive I was at the time. Um, <laughs> but, but I can see, like, Metaverse version 2. If Metaverse version 2 is this augmented reality overlay on everything. So even while we're sat here now, we've all got glasses with these heads-up displays. And I don't know. I, I don't know what kind of weird dystopian stuff. It might just suddenly start telling me Colin, Colin's really into football and we can start talking about... No, I'm not a football supporter. No, I'm, an Everto- fo- I'm an Evertonian. <laughs> we've we've already been advised. Really. Uh, well, it's yeah. only... This is, this is a problem with you saying don't bring stuff up. Then when I'm just... Yeah. When, when I've got stream why of consciousness, I, I it, it yeah. comes up in my head. So Everton's not having a great season for people who aren't into football, uh, for which I commiserate you. I'm a Spurs fan, and we're, and we're having a better season, but not that great either. Um, but, you know, let's say I didn't know that, and it would just suddenly come up, and then maybe that would be an augmented thing. Suddenly I know these things about Colin that I didn't know before, that he's, that he's an Everton fan, that he likes uh, Chinese food, and he likes going mountain biking at the weekend or something yeah. like that. Um, but... And I can see how that could be useful, but it always comes into... I suppose a lot of technology does. comes under that sort of first-world problem thing. And it maybe I'd rather find that out organically mm. or, or by accident. Or, or, you know, one of the fun, sometimes fun social things is you take the piss out of something not knowing it's someone, <laughs> someone feels really passionately about it. Let's say I start slagging off Everton not knowing he's a fan. Then suddenly you get a sort of funny moment or perhaps a violent moment <laughs> where he goes, how fucking dare you? Anyway, uh, but, I can, but I can imagine that. So it could superimpose data over people so that you know things about them that you wouldn't know otherwise. Obviously superimpose data over things and give you more benign, useful things like... Um, like real-time sort of directions. You could just go, oi, smart glasses, tell me how to get 
to the nearest pub or whatever. Yeah. I don't know why I'm always talking about pubs. <laughs> it's on your mind. Tell your past. So, but, but I mean, what do you think, Ian? Can you see that that metaverse version two being a less dystopian and a more useful and tangible thing? The sort of augmented reality yeah. side yeah. of it. Yeah. I can see things like that happening. Yeah. I, I can see. I, yeah. I think the the idea that people are going to walk around with virtual reality headsets on. You know, those are going to be used inside, aren't they? On omnidirectional treadmills for gaming and stuff, or in yeah. controlled environments. Yeah, you, would, you wouldn't factories. want to wear one of those on a building site you on, when you're on the fourteenth no. floor, yeah. or crossing you know, the road or yeah. anything. Or even, and you, you walk immediately yeah. walk off the edge of the off the edge of the building. But, no, but you something want to do like that. the. Um, you know that, that that gives you that sort of uh, readout that like like Arnold Schwarzenegger had when he was yeah. a Terminator. When he was a Terminator. Except you're not actually a robot; you're a human being with a contact lens and a pair of glasses on. I can mm. see that being used for sure. Target. Um, and I can I see mean, it being useful if if slightly Terminatory. I can still see it being useful. Yeah, I, ju- I just wonder about this. You know, the, going back to the sort of infrastructure that's needed and the edge side of it. Yeah. Is, um, you know, you get you get sort of wide-ranging opinions on this when you talk... Because I say some of the operators are really play down the need for a lot to be done. And then you hear um, people like... What, oh, what's his name? Dan Rabinovitz, I think, at Facebook Connectivity. Although, as I understand it, Facebook Connectivity isn't quite what it was anymore. It's, like, been sort of bundled into something else. But Was that the tip side of things? Well, that was as that well. In-house? But they've, a lot of the cuts of, a lot of, cuts oh, okay. of Facebook... Anyway, um, he, was, he did this blog around about this time last year, Mobile World Congress... You know, today's networks aren't good enough really to handle what we're talking about in the future, and there needs mm. to be a huge amount of investment in edge infrastructure. And um, you know, then BT I know has this view, is really undecided. Their view about how much, how many of these facilities we need in the UK, depending on what applications come, is anywhere between a hundred and a thousand. And they're saying beyond a thousand, it's kind of diminishing returns because the improvement in latency in a country of this size would be. Yeah, but you, you just sort of think it's quite a. It's quite a hard thing for them, isn't it? Because they're the ones who... I mean, this gets back to this topic of their contribution, I suppose. And they're the ones who have to go and spend the money on doing this. And then... And then it's the the Facebooks and and the the Googles and the Amazons that probably will... I know know a lot of operators have been making a big deal about the metaverse, but to me, it it doesn't necessarily seem like a positive thing for them. It's more like a cost... Well, they've got to pay for it, have they? They've got to pay for it, and they're not necessarily going to profit from it. Yeah, uh, so that is is an interesting one as to to how how they pay for their, you know, at the moment, connectivity to to those players is, is... is included in whatever you're paying as your subscription for your connectivity, whether it's 5G or DSL or, you know, fibre to the home or whatever you've got. Yeah. You know, you're paying a, a, a typically a monthly subscription and you're getting almost unlimited access to any of those services, which you're going over the top to. And then, mm. and you're right, the, yeah. the, those players are, are making profits from them and the service but providers I, are... Yeah, I suppose it's not just that. I mean, a lot of people pipe. would love it. The chip companies would love it, obviously. And the, and the so, I mean, presumably a good, good thing for any kind of vendor because there needs to be more equipment put in so I just think actually, it shows that we're not self-interested because thinking about it from a commercial point of view if that if that um, fair contribution thing went through mm. and there was this exceptional tax on big tech which was basically a transfer of wealth from big tech to the telecom sector presumably some of that would end up percolating down to what we do so it uh, shows how unbiased we are that we sort of generally slag it off when it's probably in our commercial interest for it to happen there you go we well, go. yeah, yeah, um, but I, you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, from, uh, I mean, Juniper Networks would be heavily involved in a sort of edge transformation, wouldn't it? Because you'd have to have more of, this, yeah. of the sort of equipment that your company sells being used to support a lot of this stuff that's being done. Yeah, I mean, it's all, it's all, it's all IP-based 
IP-based uh, transport between between the applications. So all of the applications use fundamentally using IP and, and various derivatives of that to, and, to, to interconnect with one another. Uh, and the and the stuff that's happened, um, you know, so, so far. I mean, in your in your sort of experience, have you seen any operators kind of? D- d- you know, being taking a risk and taking a sort of punt on this and, and making sort of some investments, or is it tended to come from, you know, some of the internet companies more that you're involved with? Because I know they talk about edge data centres now and, and having these and being able to provide this sort of thing. I mean, obviously, all of all of the big hyperscalers are investing massively in the in their data centres and their and also their peering points. So where they, you know, where they either peer with the the service providers or they peer with each other. Yeah. Because obviously, the the whole the whole internet is some sort of loose federation of of uh, of interconnects between you know between SPs and and more recently between SPs and. Uh, and you know, hyperscale data data center providers like Google and Amazon and uh, and uh, Microsoft Azure, etc. So, you know, all, all of that that's the area where perhaps they're <coughs> investing is in these these peering points. Yeah. Um, and also within you know, so you've got a network inside the data center and a network between the data centers, and then obviously you've got the 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 rest of the physical internet, which is you know a, a massive mesh of of connections between service providers. And ultimately, you know, goes to our homes and comes to to offices such as the one we're in today. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's it's just a massive uh, massive IP IP infrastructure, which, you know, they're, they're having to scale based upon the traffic growth that they're seeing. And but the traffic growth in Western Europe, and most you know, most mature most mature markets has slowed considerably. You know, it was driven massively by by video in the yeah. last few years, and we've video and that's sort of established. We yeah. we know how much Netflix and Amazon Prime people are going to be getting stuck into. Oh, that, that's interesting. But you would see it sort of not still going up, obviously, but yeah, not, yeah. not in but the, the same kind of way. Because I think a lot of people are are consuming, you know, consuming video, either streaming it or you know they're downloading it onto their set top box, yeah. which is obviously a non real time way of consuming it. But they are consuming well, it. I, over the I internet. always think that as well. It's like um, you know you see these projections, and there was one that came out this week from I think it was much so much a projection as a, a, a kind of here's where we stand in terms of consumption from Sandvine and. And, and you get Ericsson's mobility report, which shows this kind of exponential growth. But you sort of think, well, pretty much everybody's got a Netflix mm. subscription now in markets like... So the way it would grow would be like if everyone yes. suddenly went 4K or something. Well, if, if they go 4K or if you see a big takeoff in emerging markets, maybe. But unless you get a new application along, like people using virtual reality at home more or something, and that puts some new kind of pressure on the network, then you, you, you do sort of think, where does it, where does it come from? Yeah, and even even 4K video is not is not as bandwidth hungry as it was when it first came out. You know, the compression technologies they use with it these days are, uh, make it make it a little bit more reasonable in terms of bandwidth consumption. Yeah, our videographer um, Pierre's nodding sagely at that. Yeah, HVC. Yeah, yeah. Why why do you think? Because a lot of the the edge stuff that's happened so far in, from my observations been. I know a few years ago there was talk about you know telcos trying to do this off off their own bat maybe, and it's a big opportunity for them to kind of do something without necessarily the internet companies being involved. And then the deals that I'm, I'm kind of more aware of tend to involve an internet partner to some extent. I know you've got Verizon and AWS and I think Vodafone and AWS. I can't remember what the technology is called now off the top of my head. The AWS, is it Wavelength? Is the one that they tend to yeah, provide? Which, when is, doing... which, is, which is more of an optical interconnect right. <clears throat> type of thing between data centres. But I, I just wonder why they would need, you know, because there's this big thing about, well, the, the, the telcos have this real estate that's one of their big advantages here. You know, BT talks about kitting out its central offices, its exchanges potentially, and turning those into kind of mini data centres. And that's maybe the advantage they have over a, 
an internet company that's you know just got the they've got the distributed they've got the big estate. ones and the yeah. yeah but but I'm just kind of wondering why they need the internet companies to be involved at all really is it just the software expertise and the applications and and the access to applications the well, I mean, I mean, a lot of the uh, the cloud the cloud providers, and you just you talked about Amazon, but you could equally talk about Google or, yeah. or, um, or yeah, I know they're all Microsoft in Microsoft. Yeah. you know, a lot of them want to, and you know, particularly you saw you saw Microsoft acquiring a couple of companies in the in the five G space, you know, because they want to they want to actually outsource some of that five G infrastructure from some of the mobile providers themselves. Um, so again, you 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 know, they they uh, they acquired. Um, uh, it's a firm, firm, firm it? networks yeah. and um, MetaSwitch, I think, was the other one. Yeah, uh, you know, with with a view that they could provide some of that infrastructure on a managed basis by kind of virtualizing it or containerizing it, pushing it and keeping it in their cloud, and then and then actually sell that as a as a managed service to some of the mobile service providers. Okay, uh, yeah. I mean that's that's great for people such as us because you know it, it drives more network traffic. So we're you know we're, we're, we we win always round. But yeah, the question is, do you know what what the, what is a mobile service provider? Are they are they just managing customer relationships? Is that is that their job is to do branding, marketing, mm. manage a relationship with the customer and then outsource their network to someone else? Or do they actually want to manage and own that infrastructure? Yeah. Um, and if so, how do they get their ROI? Yeah, from- yeah exactly. And, you know, the, the investment to, to roll out 5G, uh, we talked about network densification where you have to have, you know, a factor of 10 or a factor of 20 more base stations in the network to really roll out 5G in dense urban areas. Um, you know that's that's extremely expensive to do, not yeah. not just from the network, the equipment itself, but also the networking behind it. You know, the unless you have you know decent connectivity back to into the rest of the network, um, then then that becomes uh, you know you know equally it does doesn't really work because again you need you need really low latency to to make some of these five G applications do you, work. Do you have a sort of hunch of where it's going? Because you know what you just said, it's even even some of these tower deals seem to be you know there's a sort of changing of the guard isn't there almost in terms of who who owns and runs the infrastructure you know you see people like Selnex coming along and mm. i think they're even now talking about having they might they might even have done this in a couple of markets where they actually have an active role and they they're, they're not just sort of renting out passive infrastructure but also the the base stations on it and then all of a sudden you think well the operators are just effectively becoming mvnos aren't they in yeah, a way. Exactly. And, but um i just wonder where where you know where it might end up you, you could have a situation uh, conceivably where there's maybe only a couple of infrastructure networks in a country and and four or five decent mvnos perhaps in in the future that used to be the the network operators even yeah in terms of in terms of that you know mobile network the radio access network which is the part that you know where we see the masts and the towers and uh, and the antenna in our in our local areas you know all, all of that kind of physical infrastructure is you know it's very costly to to build and very costly to maintain and yeah. outsourcing that to a third party who wants to specialize in doing that is is something a lot of them do and they they obviously they also deal with all of the the legal issues about getting access to you know on tops of buildings or building a new tower in a getting a residential Giles area. To let him yeah, through the exactly, gate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and upsetting the local community who say not in my backyard <laughs> i don't want this 5g mast in my it was interesting yeah. i saw an article in the in the news uh, last last week where somebody was talking about 6g and i'm thinking they were complaining about a 6g mast had been put up in their local area and i'm thinking 6G, really? Unlikely. Yeah, God. unlikely since it isn't, doesn't exist. I'll but, tell you, anyway. some of the easiest reads <clears throat> we got ever was in 2020 when everyone was going around vandalising 5G masks. They thought, people, gave, they thought everyone. It, everyone, <laughs> everyone. Well, you were, Pierre, I saw you. Um, because they thought it gave them coronavirus. Yeah. 
That's, those are fun times. And that, was that not true? Apparently not. No. We, we looked into it, and apparently you cannot transmit biological matter over electromagnetic frequencies. So yeah, that'd be amazing. Yet. You can yes. vaccinate everyone just from being outside. Yeah, none of this. None of this. I'm Constantly. not going to get vaccinated. You just get zapped. <laughs> It's like when the, when you go through that thing in the in the airport, they go, "Well, you're, while you're there, I'm going to fill you with all these vaccines and bullshit." <laughs> um, so some of what we're talking about there gets us onto the more general. Um, you, you were talking about sort of densification and urban stuff, and, and and I guess I guess what I'm getting at is that the business model for 5G. Mm. So you know, I take your point. You're very honest. Obviously, professionally, um, the more the more people want to densify and build out more infrastructure and more edge and and more. Uh, presumably small cells and everything else that's associated with 5G, then that's great for Juniper, Juniper Networks because they'll need more kit. Well, they'll need or, more, more your services, yeah. more, more of whatever it is you do. Um, but I'm still, after all this time, not convinced by the business model of like spending the money on those small cells, on that densification, all that sort of thing. I understand that you can get the low latency from the edge. I understand that using mid-band and millimetre wave will massively increase sort of capacity. And all that sort of thing, but the but the ROI, you know, back to what what you and Ian were just talking about, you know, what is the business model for these operators? They've got to get the ROI on all that spend. Mm. I mean, are, are there some ways in which that has been demonstrated that aren't, that aren't obvious to me? <laughs> well, I think we're back to we're back to talking about these what are these applications again? The because that, that's yeah. the only you know nobody's paying more for their connectivity. No, um, you know I, I recently got a new a new a new uh, a new mobile device. I won't mention the the vendor, but you can it's one of the more popular ones, and it actually supports five G. And I've I've turned my five G on, and I've got my hundred and fifty megabit connection, which I measured and thought that's fantastic. But does it really change what I do on my mobile phone? No, not not entirely. Because yeah. 4G, 4G worked fine. It isn't often. 150 is not special. When he gets to like 700. Oh, okay. Well, and then, and then it's still. Does that change your life when it gets no. to that level, Pierre? Yeah. I keep saying, <laughs> if you try to download a podcast on Spotify on like 700, 800 megs, you know, you do the speed test and like, okay, let's, let's go download a podcast. It still takes like two minutes. Really? Where technically, it should take five seconds. Mm. Right. So something's, something's going, going on. Right that, yeah. Speed well, that's, that, that'll be the server. Exactly. The, the server is the bottleneck there, not yeah. the network at all. It's the server's ability to push the packets out. Yeah. So, so that, but that's you, yeah. a really interesting point because that if people are getting they're going around doing these speed tests and it's showing 800 megabits per second and mm. because of another bottleneck they're still speeders. having to wait for you know as Pierre says they're having to wait for ages to get these things downloaded then that's I mean a consumer's not going to look at this and go oh it's the server they they just won't know they'll they'll just think 5G is not what it's cracked up to be or. No, in two um, minutes is fine. My point is that it shouldn't wrong. be two minutes. Yeah, yeah no, it's yeah. Your points. I, I don't want to be. Your points understood and well made. Um, yeah, I mean, a, a chain's only as strong as its weakest link and all that sort of thing. Um, but but Ian's point is that punters won't understand that. They'll, yeah. they'll blame the service provider rather but than it's, it's, it's not just it's a kind of if you've made these investments that support the, 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 the near gigabit per second connectivity what's the point if there's another massive mm. bottleneck sort of further up the, yeah. up and, the chain there are, there are it, lots it's, of those it's, um, you know and it's, it's, it's I mean Wi-Fi less so perhaps now because there have been quite a lot of advances that have happened on the Wi-Fi side but there are, there are other things that you know your, your, your device itself can be a bottleneck can't mm. it in terms of what it can process and what it can do with, with some of this stuff if you've got an older one I know the latest iPhones it's probably not as much of an issue but if you're using uh, an iPhone 6 before you drop it into the oven then you know, you've got, <laughs> you've, um, don't cook it that was something Ian did over Christmas oh yeah. okay Good. Yeah, yeah. it just slipped out of his it didn't end well 
I didn't even know it was in the oven actually oh, okay. for about for about twenty uh, minutes, uh, and then um, nice. and then I opened and there wasn't a nice smell coming out the oven. But um, I, I meant to ask you, did you eat the food still that was in the oven? Oh yeah. It didn't taste. Smoked. It wasn't. It, it didn't land on the roast potatoes. It was like on the bottom shelf. No, but the smoke. He's concerned about the atmosphere of, yeah. of rare earth vaporizing rare like earth metallic no. potatoes. No, they, oh. they tasted great actually. Maybe I should do it more often. <laughs> just get like old old phones. I, like, I wasn't. I wasn't yeah. ditching those potatoes that I'd worked very hard on. <laughs> you know what I mean, so all your family is sitting there going, "This tastes dodgy." You go, "Fucking eat them." <laughs> Maybe you could write the iPhone cookbook or something. How to, you know, put your put your iPhone in with everything. Exactly, Heston Blumenthal, eat your heart out. We're, we're using random yeah, gadgetry. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So no, good point. And 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 the broader point is an interesting dilemma that the telecoms industry's always had. So this is something that comes up when I talk to people who are involved in I don't know, um, maybe the sort of. CEM, customer experience management type of things. And, and one of the dilemmas they've always got is the customer um, sees EE or, or Vodafone or whoever as their point of contact, but it could be so many other sort of companies mm. or, or factors that are culpable for their negative user experience. And it also, in fact, we might I might use this as a, as a tangent to get onto something else that we were planning talking about when we were discussing the pod in, um, beforehand. Um, you know, it's, it's a big <coughs> overhead for these operators to have to... Um, have these call centers and deal with these moaning um, biddies. Yeah, people who know fuck all about technology. They just know that they can't, they're not getting their Luddites. bit of comms gratification straight away. Um, so, uh, and that's interesting. And, you know, another tangent on that is, is, is this sort of chatbot technology. I think we were chatting briefly about Chat chat GPT, GPT and all that. Yeah. But, but um, yeah, sorry, were you going to yeah, say? Yeah, well, we've, we've got, a, we've, we actually do a product that, that helps with that because uh -huh. we have a, we have a thing we call into your yeah, yeah you, so a, 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 a blatant plug and unashamed that's right. plug here but that's yeah, we have something we call paragon active automation which is um which is where we can put a, like a little probe out in the network that actually sits on say a, you know a video stream or something and will actually actively monitor its performance now normally we you've been able to do that for a long time but um, what, what we can actually do there is we can sit in the actual video stream and monitor its performance if somebody says my video is not working mm. you can actually put this this small automated um uh, uh it's, it's basically a small application that sits in the network and it allows allows us to monitor that and see you know a is the connectivity there and b is it delivering the the performance that you that sounds useful it sounds like the sort of thing and i'm sure there are other <coughs> providers but it sounds like the sort of thing they should all have and they should have somehow plugged into their their customer facing side of things so that when someone gets in touch and moans Yeah, and we and we obviously you use it during deployment to check that the service is working when you deploy it, and then you should use it proactively then as an automated uh, test script to to check that the service is working correctly, and we we can put it you know randomly on different streams and stuff and make sure those streams are working. So we we're deploying that quite you know quite uh, quite significantly around the world at the moment to check particularly things like video stream quality. Uh, where, mm. where you know cable operators are, are rolling out you know thousands of video stream digitized video streams. Yeah, uh, it makes sense that a company like yours would get involved in that sort of thing, is given that it's your software and gizmos that mm. are right in the in the sort of plumbing. But, yeah, well, pro providing a network and then being able to prove the network is doing what it claims claims you claims it's doing is important to us and important to, to our service provider customers that they can check, demonstrate that to their end customers. Automation is quite a big deal generally, though, isn't it, for, for Juniper? I mean, are you in, in, is the company involved at all in this whole... I know it's not... 
I don't know how much AI is involved in it, but there's an expression intent-based networking, you know, where it's kind of, it's declarative, isn't it? You sort of issue an instruction and the idea yep. is that the, the the machines, if you like, the software goes off and carries out the steps that are needed to get to that end point. And, where, and then your coders who would be doing that before are kind of removed from the process. And yep. it's... It, it, as you, we were talking about this before we came on, before we came on, it sort of removes the potential for for faults and and, and potentially for frees people's horrible, time. Horrible, flawed, dilettante human beings. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, we, we we definitely see, you know, from our experience that a lot of networking issues are created by human error. Yeah. Is people put you know type the wrong configs into routers and switches. Uh, they do something that they don't realise will, will will have a, a detrimental effect on the network and. Uh, and that that can cause a massive outage. We see that every single day. And you know, you, the one thing with automation is it doesn't it doesn't make those mistakes. Well, it does make mistakes. It's not infallible. And, and it still has to be programmed by human beings. Exactly, because the, the humans that, that built it probably. Yeah. But it certainly doesn't make as many mistakes as, as human beings. Particularly and you should, when you're doing repetitive tasks that you've you don't you do over and over again. The other thing is people get bored, and when they're doing repetitive tasks, they yeah. tend to make mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas automation never gets bored; it just it just it, does it, the same thing over it. and over again. Yeah. It's yeah. what it lives for. And but, I suppose you know, having said that, um, machines are only as good as their human programmers. What you can do is refine them, mm. and then ring fence it and go this one through. You know, thousands, millions. You've of been iterations. reading our AI, AI bump, haven't you? Have I? Is that, am I is this getting, the automation. Is this is this getting close to your stuff? No, this is me just winging it. Um, but you know, through a million iterations, this thing hasn't fucked up once. I bet your bump doesn't say that. Mm. Um, so now we know this one. Let's just ring fence that one. This one's a done deal. Yeah. Um, sorry. Were you about no, to say no, I was just going to say. I mean, on the people who were who would have been doing this, you know, rather dull. Let's call it the sort of coding equivalent of shelf stacking or something, mm. and you and you all of a sudden you can automate that. Yep. What, what do the what what do they do then? I mean, is it a case of does that support a sort of downsizing in the companies that are doing it, or is it a case of like moving them and getting them to do other things instead? You know, I, I mean, there's there's definitely an aspect of you know people people are an incredibly large cost if you're a service provider. Um, so, so yeah, there's people and there's energy. We're going to probably talk about energy later, but I think people are in a very high cost, particularly skilled people. One, they're hard to find. Two, you know, if they're really good, they earn they earn quite a lot of money, and they they you know that 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 that's therefore a big cost on the business. And if you you know again, getting them to do you know repetitive, boring tasks, you know, doesn't doesn't satisfy their curiosity, and, and equally, as we said, they make mistakes. So yeah, I mean, what what they tend to do is try and you know, put them onto creating new services, rolling, you know, redesigning the network, doing stuff that really requires, you know, uh, real, real human intelligence. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and offload all of those boring, repetitive tasks to automation as much as possible. And as you said, you know, we can use AI to say, okay, if we've seen this profile of, so we see we see a number of things happen in the network, and then then the network fails. Okay, so we can learn from that if we do that as an iterative process, over and over again. We can say, okay, if if we start to see this happening, then maybe a failure is going to occur, and we can kind of start to make it a little bit more proactive. And that's that really is what about what AI the AI application of AI in the in the network is all about is looking for for patterns that result in in bad outcomes. Yeah, and once it's you can find those. You can potentially avoid the bad outcome. No, yeah, no, I, I can yeah. see that being a, a, an advantage. I'm just kind of wondering if, you know, because you were talk, talking about Chat GPT, 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 isn't it? Yeah. Um, which everybody seems to be talking about on, mm -hmm. you know, LinkedIn and in the kind of general news. And I've not, I have to say, I've not used it, but I've read about what it can do. And 
from a from the sort of perspective of somebody whose job is partly to do writing, you ca- you kind of think, where does this go? Um, because the things that that some write some writers are saying it can do. I, th- I remember reading one blog where someone said they'd used it to kind of um, smooth out paragraphs and add a bit of literary spark to the paragraph. <laughs> right. And I and I kind of thought, well. A lot of professional writers would deem that one of the more satisfying aspects of the job. So yeah, if you start yeah. to automate those things, then... No, the gutting thing will be where we're professional writers. I'm not saying that we're, you know, William Shakespeare, but we, yeah. we, we like to think that we justify what we get paid in part because we add a bit of flourish, a bit of yeah, personality yeah. to it. And if we end up getting made redundant, it's a bit like your thing with uh, strikes, where you're in favour of strikes in principle unless it fucks you up. <laughs> I'm in favour of all this automation in principle until it starts coming after my job, and then I then I, I want to yeah, burn it like no, the witch I just, it is. I just sort of, I mean, it's not a, it's, it's just more of a sort of philosophical point. Is that as, as AI becomes more and more, and, and ChatGPT is very specific. It's in one specific area, but you kind of think, well, if it's if it's good enough to do kind of creative things, which it sounds like it is to some mm. extent, sort of. When you ask it to write a song, it's always the same structure. It's like it's I mean, right now; it's repetitive. Yeah, but, but you're, you're think, you think that because you're sort of comparing it to what um, a, 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 what a poet can do. You know, I mean, ten years ago, if someone had suggested <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that something could do this, you'd be quite shocked. No, and, no, yeah, but everything is so vanilla, though. I, I hope we can agree on that. Yeah, like, it, it is generic. Well, because have you tried f- it? From what? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Um, from what I understand about it, is what it is is it's it's a very powerful way of of this um, AI actually um, dipping into the internet, dipping into the sort of collective wisdom. Uh, and then it's got clever algorithms and AI to to look at what your um, natural language request is. But then all it really does, it doesn't generate anything by itself. It goes, okay, what do they want? What does the internet have to say? And it's really good at that. There was an interesting tangent. I was just into a podcast. But isn't that all we do as human beings? We just dip into our memory banks and, and we think we're generating it ourselves, but yeah, really yeah. it's just been putting together... To some extent, that... but I'd, I'd say there's two things. In fact, the, the illustration I just can give now might um, sh- shed some light on that. I was listening to a podcast on the way down by uh, Jeff Norcott, the guy who did the uh, awards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he... Uh, I think someone wrote in and said, um, you know, tell me about Jeff Norcott. And they told him what the answer was. And ChatGPT had gone, Jeff Norcott's contentious because uh, he's considered to be this, that and the other. And it was, it was, it was not a particularly flattering picture of him because he's, he can be a bit edgy and he'll, he'll, he'll sometimes take on culture war issues from a certain direction. Yeah. ChatGPT, obviously with no intrinsic bias against Jeff Norcott, still had obviously gone to Wikipedia or whatever... And, yeah, yeah and, and found this one-sided view of him as being much more edgy, much more like, I don't know, Jim Davidson yeah. than he actually is. So and so the point I'm making is... <laughs> well, it's yes, got, yes, it's, it's got biases like people. Yeah, then. it's replicating what we do, but I think, to Pierre's point, I think it's doing it still quite crudely. But yeah. What is interesting is the next iteration well, and the one after that and the one after that. And I'm trying to bring it back to telecom. Yeah, yeah, sure. What my point is, if if you have something that is in a sort of area that's perceived to be a creative area, and there's similar AI programs that can apparently compose music in the style of Bark, <laughs> and then take it one step beyond and do start doing their own stuff, Bark Plus. On the network side of things, presumably, you know, the underlying technologies are the same. So, um, you know, do we get to the point where 
you move your, you move your code is off doing the boring stuff to doing something more interesting but then the interesting stuff becomes automated as well and then it's like well we take them off and maybe they become yeah more strategic I, I mean still I, I, and, yeah, I, in fact I'm, I'm not suggesting that you know AI is creative right I'm su- yeah. suggesting that AI actually actually helps to, to remove errors and it, it helps yeah. to automate boring repetitive tasks in in the most part or it looks for patterns which which the human brain could never could never see because it as you said it does it hundreds of thousands or millions of times it looks at you know what yeah. what 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 occurred in the network a series of series of actions that cause a reaction that that you know it can use it as a proactive maintenance tool to say hang on we've seen an, an increased error rate on this interface and then it flapped a little bit and all of a sudden this happened you yeah know, mm. a human wouldn't do that because it's just too boring to look at that a hundred times. Yeah, well, it'll just obsess over that one little anomaly. Yeah. I think yeah. I think that's a really important point about um, AI and technologies like ChatGPT. Is um, you know uh, one thing, slight sort of self plug. When I was when I was writing my book, one of the interesting things I wrote a novel about a couple of years ago, and I'd never attempted to write fiction before, mm-hmm. having been a sort of journalistic writer for a while. And one of the really interesting things about writing it was what I learned about the creative process. Because I had I had a starting point, I had a vague sort of end point, but I didn't know what the journey would be. And the way the journey ended up was quite organic and stuff occurred to me. I'd just be sitting there writing and suddenly a new thing would occur to me. Like, oh yeah, fucking hell. And I didn't know where that came from. And I hear people who are much more prolific and more successful creatives than I am talk in a similar way. They're like, where does this come from? It's a bit of a mystery. And I wonder whether that will be one of the one of the distinctions we need to make even if we get into general purpose ai which is like the ultimate skynet kind of shit um is they're very good at what colin's describing ai can be very this this quite sort of linear problem solving analytical stuff but stuff that requires more serendipitous sort of organic um creativity maybe is something that hopefully Humans mm. will still have over the goddamn machines for a little while. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah. you told you told me earlier on that one of your jobs as a journalist is is to be a bullshit filter. Yeah, there we go. And I mean, you know, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, we'll never get we'll never get something well, that will that will automate I, that. I'm not as convinced on the creativity okay. side of things because I think creativity is one of those things that's quite hard to nail down. Yeah. We, we we like to sort of big up ourselves as creative in a way that computers aren't because I think it's this desire to sort of think think of ourselves as having a soul kind of thing almost you know we're being slightly different uh, basically we're just very sophisticated computers but i think that the general ai, AI points where i think there is an advantage i mean a, a chat gpt can't sit in a room with colin and drink beer and and then go out and do a meeting afterwards and take notes and why not and if an we ex- can and we're just computers well that's what i'm saying that's what general there isn't good general ai oh, there's, there's a good so you a, can imagine that being the case one day yeah i'm not saying that won't happen but at the moment what I i'm see. saying is that there are a lot there's a, a much bigger gap in terms of right, that right. of having a multi-function Understood. having an ai that could go off and do some intent-based networking and then in the <clears> afternoon it writes a sonnet you know <laughs> and then and then it designs a new type of lager or something, um, you know. S- speaking of, sorry, uh, uh, this this one good line in the movie, iRobot, have you seen that? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. the Will Smith one. He's arguing with a robot and he's yelling at the robot saying, but you cannot uh, create a masterpiece like painting. And the robot goes, can you? <laughs> and yeah, like, yeah. Ah. And then wait, did Will Smith jump up on bit. stage and slap the robot? No, yeah. he just looks annoyed. <laughs> but wait, uh, talking about Sonnet, I asked Chad GPT the other day, a Shakespearean Burger King menu. And he <laughs> came up with, Oh, Burger King menu, how doth thy options please? <laughs> With flame grill burgers and crispy fries, the Whopper does ra- doth, 
doth doth, yeah, doth, doth reign a king among meals and onion rings doth add to thy delights <laughs> Plenty. And then there's another. I mean, that's not a bad effort, is it? No, yeah. it's, it's, it's crazy. It's, Although it is it's, probably what you get from a 12-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think if Burger King put that out as their menu, they probably would get more, <laughs> more, more customers and save money on uh, marketing yeah. agencies, ad, yeah. ad agencies. Yeah. Do they uh, do they teach Shakespeare in France? Uh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. So it's not it's just an ang- it's not just though. an Anglo thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I'm not that into it as a native English speaker. Very hard for English people to read. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> alone for. I mean, yeah, the adapted versions were. But he's like, so he's so uh, venerated um, in, in in England, and I suspect other English speaking countries. Oh, no, yeah, I was yeah. wondering if it made it over the channel as of well. Of course, yeah. Because yeah. I don't think we got a French equivalent of Shakespeare that we get taught about, do we? Yeah, but they have their own. I know we got sort of Voltaire and Camus yeah. and all that sort yeah, of. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. But but it's not put on a pedestal like Shakespeare is. Not here it is, and because they're French. Because <laughs> they're bloody French. Hugo, Victor Hugo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Victor yeah. Hugo, Miserable, and all that lot. I think that it's he was the like, guy that, he was the guy have... that designed Paris, wasn't he? Yeah? The what? Didn't he design the design the Parisian system of streets and things? Did he? I don't know. Yeah. Mm. I thought so. No, I think we think that you guys have... of thinking he understands much about France. Oh, okay. No, no, I think the thing is with Shakespeare is he's such like above everything else. Like yeah. we have like loads of good ones. Yeah, I was just this. wondering if that if that translated over over the channel and over language barrier and it obviously does. Interesting. Mm. Anyway. Super um, massive tangent. It was a super massive tangent. Uh, I was just chatting to a colleague actually who listens to the podcast, and he goes, he's, he cracks up because he knows that about five times a pod, I'm going to go, I'm going to go off on a massive tangent now and sort of excuse mm. myself. But, but I will try I mean, and bring it back. Where, I was going to make a point. Yeah, another point about because you know I, I don't want to keep sort of being the guy who's saying that automation is going to make us all lose jobs. But you are that guy, though. I, I know I, I am kind of because if you look at the. I mean, if you listen to the guys who are sort of building state-of-the-art greenfield networks and what they say they can do, I mean, I find it quite interesting listening to, um, uh, what's his name, Tarek Amin at, at Rakuten, where they've got their, you know, their, and I know it's, um, I know there's criticism of that project, it's not taken off in terms of building subscribers yet and it's costing them a lot of money, but in terms of what they've been able to deliver, technically it works and the team's just incredibly small. I remember mm. talking to him about the size of his operations team and they capped it last year when it reached 250 people. Whereas each of, each of Japan's like traditional operators have a few thousand on that side of things. And you know, and his, his reason for that is just that you know, they're, they're all maintaining legacy platforms. They've grown over the years. They've been heavily regulated. They've, they've got all this baggage that they've kind of built up. Whereas he's been able to come along and just do something that's state-of-the-art and very very sort of, you know, um, very streamlined. And uh, you, you get rid of a lot of the things that, you know, technology vendors are interested in pushing. They've yep. taken advantage of. And used automation to an you know to an incredible degree, and it's allowed them to have this team that's just a fraction of the size. And you sort of think, well, that's quite worrying for anybody who's in a brownfield that over the years will adapt where, where it goes, because those people aren't in his company being used to do other things. They're just not there at all, you know. Yeah, and I mean, we 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 definitely see a lot of our service providers looking somewhat in envy at the at the hyperscale players, you know, the Googles and the Amazons yeah. and, and the way they automate things and the way that everything mm. is, you know, software driven and, um, you know, we, we they, they're very envious of that and they're, they're trying to replicate it because they believe that's that's the model with, which yeah. they can use to, no, we heard to from transform their own hire all these yeah. software developers. No? Absolutely. And, um, you know, t- to a certain extent, a lot of them are doing it and they're doing it by creating small teams doing that kind of stuff where they're bringing in people without the baggage of the organisation into a small team with a very clear objective, you know, 
potentially putting them in another office so they don't get polluted by the rest of the organization and saying, you know, yeah. go, go achieve this. And one of, one of our good examples is, you know, we're working with, with, uh, with, with Deutsche Telekom and they're, you know, they've, they've done this thing called NIMS, which is a, uh, you know, a, a fully virtualized uh, telco cloud where they've taken all of the, the basic uh, telephony switching intelligence and virtualize that in the cloud and that team's using you know the cid the ci cd continuous integration continuous development type of software driven approaches to build all that stuff yeah um you know we've we've helped them with the technology along partnering with red hat on that one and that's you know that's been extremely successful in that they've done that in a completely um you know devops cloud centric sort of sort of fashion uh which has completely changed the way they would normally develop a service and followed that kind of cloud cloud centric model. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm kind of sympathetic to them doing that. You know, in in a lot of ways, if I'm if I'm the the CTO who's charged with making this company more efficient, and mm. you know, they, they all talk about the thing we were just talking about earlier. They have to make the edge investments. They have to. The, the sounds good. We like that. You like you like yeah, the, you like the, the can being yeah. opened. But the you know, if they have it to is make only diet coke. <laughs> I, will, I will tell the listeners that it is only diet coke. I if, promise. If, if they have to, you know, the guys who have to spend this money on the network rollout, and they're you know they're struggling <clears> with sales growth, and if you you know, if, if you want to survive in the long run, you know, the expression that, that, you know, I think it was Deutsche Telekom's deputy CTO a few years ago said, well, you know, we need to brutally automate to just, just to kind of succeed. And I can sort of see the the, the rationale for doing it, for sure. Mm. Um, and we, we use a lot of automation, you know, when we're, we're, when we're developing our products and we're doing testing. Yeah. So we use a huge amount of automation in our testing because, you know, we're testing a massive piece of piece of code which we're continually changing. And you know when you when you, you you're designing code that runs networking devices, you know you you create a new feature over here and you break something somewhere else. So we have to test all of the existing features, and we we've automated massively that that kind of testing, um, such that you know because otherwise it would be it would be almost impossible to do all of that testing manually using people. So we have the you know we we spent huge amount of effort building all of these scripts to test all of that software so we okay. make sure that when we build something new we don't break anything else yeah um, so all of that is massively automated in our business so we're doing automation at that level but we're also doing automation for the way our customers use it in the network as well Does, has it fitted in with because i know juniper if i'm if i'm right has kind of made a series of quite small acquisitions in the yes. last sort of few years and i know some of them have been in the security space but are the kinds of companies that you know, you're going after. Would automation and, and that kind of expertise be something that that you'd look to? to Absolutely. Provide? I mean, yeah. I mean, we we acquired a. Um, obviously, we we provide you know data center, uh, data center switches, but we also run you know on top of that, we run a massive you know you know a very large complex IP fabric on top of those physical switches, which is kind of you know an overlay of. And we, and we we acquired a company called Appstra, which is absolutely about how we we automate the creation of that fabric. So every time right. you know you add a new switch or you add a new user, uh, Appstra will will completely automate the stand up of the fabric. That's so top they're of that. very much an intent based networking, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely the principle of before you bought them of what, but, of what we're doing. Yeah. What we're doing there is you know these these lot very large data centers, whether they are physically centralized or distributed. Um, require a massive amount of automation because you know they're they're almost too big for the human brain to comprehend. Number yep. one, um, they require a huge amount of you know work to to kind of work out where all the connections need to be and also to manage all of those connections. Particularly when you know something breaks or when you add a, a new a new site or a new node or stuff like that, you have to rebuild all of these connections, and you need a really strong automation solution to be able to do that in a 
in a realistic way to be able to to be able to make all of those changes. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking there, there was another tangent. I think you're going off, but we've been talking about this for a sort of hour or so. So I might just uh, wrap up the general um, networking chit chat there. Unless mm. there's anything else, Colin, that, that that you wish that we'd spoken about that we haven't. No, not 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 really. I mean, we you know, like like we say, we're we're, we're a networking company, and, and automation is absolutely a fair foot forefront of what we're trying to do uh, particularly with you know building the new metro network and stuff like that which again is a you know everything we do is about you know large complex ip problems so yeah you know how do we manage manage all of the complexity in that network and how do we kind of to a certain extent uh, insulate the 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 network operators and, and more importantly the end users from that from that complexity there, so that it just works there is one thing because we, we're going to talk about energy weren't we for a bit energy yeah. efficiency i mean i'm just curious about there's a lot of talk about this, obviously, at the moment. It's it's a it's a topic. It's you know the sustainability comes up a lot, and um, I'm kind of wondering how Juniper sees it. I mean, I'm guessing that there's always a push to have more energy efficient technologies, and 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 I get that, and you know we obviously need it, but at the same time, people are using more and more devices. You know, we were just talking about the edge there. More and more of these facilities being built out. Um, and technology, by, almost by definition, is going to become more energy sort of intensive. Yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering. New you know, clever we, stuff that goes mm. on. It's always going to require. I look. I've got a, in my office. I bought this little uh, gadget, which is a bank of eight um, plugs for USB A. You know, the main big fat USB yeah. thing. And and it's full, and it's nearly always being used because I use it to charge all mine and my kids' stuff up. And every night, there's just about five or six devices just sprouting off this thing. Yeah. Um, and that's only going to grow and grow and grow. So even if you just look at like rechargeable devices, that's, that's well. Th- this is what I think. That if people just if there's more and more infrastructure and devices, do we, you know, do we end up with it just being flat? Does it go up anyway? Even if the technologies are more efficient, you know, is it is it too optimistic to expect us? I to think I think the down? principle that we've stuck to for for a number of years now is is. It, it would be nice to say we're going to drive the, the the energy consumption of the network down. I think the best thing we can do is probably keep it flat and also deal with all of the growth in traffic that we're seeing. So yeah. ultimately, what you end you end up with is a is a flat energy consumption, uh, but you know, ten times ten times the capacity. And I think at the moment that's about the best that we can probably achieve in terms of fair enough. You know, what what the network will do. But I mean, I would like to kind of flip that on its head and say. But how much how much carbon or you know climate affecting things do we do we solve with networking? Because you know the fact that you know we can all speak to people around the world and not have to fly or you know not get on a on a on a, in our cars to you know go to meetings and stuff. I mean you know. And do you think that's think, happening practically? Because um, we know the theory, and people have been banging on about video conferencing for decades. But, like, for example, on this pod, we would still far rather meet you in person and have you here sat yeah. in the room with us. Um, but do you think, you know, I, I'm not I'm not even positioning you as an expert on this, just anecdotally. Do you think that's happening? Do you think people are more and more remotely engaging? Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm, I'm certainly travelling less because, you know, I can do a lot of stuff on, you know, whatever the most popular um, collaboration platform is. Mm-hmm. Uh, we won't give anyone a plug here, but uh, yeah, no, <laughs> I mean, fine, it's, it's, it's absolutely, uh, absolutely the case that you know, I, I turn my video on when I'm doing my calls with with all of my colleagues and with my customers all the time, and you know, you get a lot. A lot of people are still working from home, whether we like it or not. I mean, we're mm. all trying to go into the office a little bit more because we all like the human interaction, but you know, 
we we are all working working from home, working remotely, and and I think that 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 is absolutely enabled by by networking technologies allowing us to you know be able to have those real time interactions totally. over video. And I, and I think culturally, funnily enough, the the pandemic, which was almost entirely a, a negative, um, uh, did sort of normalise. Yeah. You know, we were. I, I joked once years ago. In fact, we're you know we'll, we'll get onto this in a sec. Um, the uh, once I was covering the Ericsson quarterly numbers, mm. and, and it was during the lockdown. So Boy at home had to deliver his little bit of spiel from his living room, mm. and that which you know which, which led us to sort of speculate about, or led me to speculate about whether all his furniture is IKEA because I'm making crude generalisations about Sweden, or whether he uh, was wearing sweatpants and a, and a jacket. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, I you know I'm quite happy to admit when I'm working from home. I don't wear jeans. I wear like pajama bottoms. Mm. Uh, and if I stood up in the middle of some team meeting, it would be quite hilarious with my look. Especially if they fell down. Checked pajama bottoms. Um, but but I think pre-COVID, most of us made most of us made voice conference calls, audio conference calls. And these days, I think it is pretty much the norm. At least in our, it is mm. in our company where people turn their video on. Yeah, so and no one thinks it's weird if you see personal shit in the background. Obviously, not too personal, mm. but you know, a messy bookshelf or something like that. Um, well, that, that's yeah. what you want, isn't it? You that's want a bookshelf. Randomly sprung to mind. Ideally. Yeah, except I don't have really a bookshelf high, full of really highbrow yeah, books. Yeah, with, with Shakespeare. And yeah. I don't have it with full it. of yeah Shakespeare and and, and Camus. <laughs> I've just got some mess, and I've got one tub that's just got wires. You, you've got a hundred copies of Identity Crisis yeah. behind you <laughs> by Scott Bichette. I should do that. Encyclopedia <laughs> Britannica, which <laughs> make, make it a piece anymore. of art. You know, like. do you know what? I'm so unprofessional; it never occurred to me. You look at people like Douglas Murray; they've always got their own books behind them when they do these little things. You're missing a trick there. Um, yeah, because well, then the first be a bit thing tragic. say is, "What's what's the, what's the book you've got there, Scott?" And you, you can go, just, "Well, you just hold it in your hand the whole time." <laughs> what is it? <laughs> I just happen to be flicking through this randomly. It's oh, it's, so, <laughs> it's a page turner. But you know, but culturally, I think it's interesting that's become normal. Um, I, you know, a, a generation ago, if you've been having a business meeting. Firstly, you would expect everyone to wear a suit. Mm-hmm. Secondly, you'd expect a certain a certain sort of levels of business decorum that would have been expected. And I think them in their house, not wearing a suit and tie with random shit behind them would have just been really incongruous and odd. Mm. And yet here we are, I think massively accelerated by a lockdown. Yep. And it's just totally normal. Yeah, no, we... It's it's a, it's an everyday thing. But, you know, it's, it's really good to get back into the office and see people in person and, you know... Mm have a cup of coffee or go out for a beer or whatever it's that you know we're, we're, we're all really enjoying that that part of coming back to it all but well yeah. as, as Ian and I were reflecting um, we usually <coughs> go for a beer after the pod and we, we definitely overdid it uh, last time we were both feeling like shit on Saturday so um, there's pros and cons is my mm. point um, yes I mean I, I'm, I'm not going to go down the energy efficiency tangent only because of time I mean I think it's interesting and I, th- I think especially coming this week um, on the back of the Davos thing, which I've been following a lot, and there's been a lot of greenwash coming from that. The Davos set have definitely decided that that the eco side of things is is an angle for them. And it comes under this broader concept of what they call stakeholder capitalism. Anyway, don't get me started. But I saw there were people sleeping in tents outside who were, like, complaining about, you know, climate issues. and they Yeah, sleeping. well... It, they, they kind of chose chose to sleep in a tent to, is that to where, highlight that. Is that mm. where Greta Thunberg was arrested? No, yeah, I think it probably. has some other thing. Ah. Was it? But it's was the sort Munich, of thing she would Munich. turn up to. It's the thing, it's in no, Davos. it was in Germany it's, it's, because they were opening a coal mine. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they're opening coal mine. 
Um, I read somewhere that was staged. Anyway. Um, what, opening a coal mine? No, her arrest. Oh. I think she expected to be arrested, but... I yeah, think... a bit of a stunt. Let's call it a stunt. That's, that's halfway between sort of organic and staged, mm. isn't it? Um, but, uh, but anyway, I think <laughs> the thing that's relevant to, to that Davos thing is I think there's two ways of looking at um, green stuff. So I'm very sceptical about greenwash, not because I don't care about the planet, just because I think a lot of companies are very cynical and going, look, look what we're doing, we've got carbon offsets or whatever, we've planted a fucking tree, now leave us alone. Um, and I think there's a lot of disingenuous stuff there, but I'm a big fan of technology solving environmental problems. It, it, I find it possible to believe that human beings are not having an impact on, on the planet. There's so many of us. You look out the window of our office here, you look at London, you can't see where London ends. There's loads of us. We've got to be having more impact than a leopard is or something. Yeah. All the dinosaurs. All the dinosaurs. What happened to them? <laughs> we are. That, that, that showed them. Um, so we've got to be having some impact, but I don't think the answer... This is a complete tangent. Uh, another Scott Pachena tangent, TM. Um, I don't think the answer is us just doing less, partly because we're not going to do less. Mm. We're not going to do stop doing what we fancy. And, and where I find it really annoying is when they're sort of basically implying that developing countries shouldn't continue to develop because they're normally the ones using the more inefficient technologies and puking the more CO2 and methane and stuff into the atmosphere. Um, but I'm a big fan of any technological answers where it enables you to either do the same thing for less energy or, as you were just describing earlier, Colin... Um, do a lot more of what we're doing now for at no greater energy impact. So that's all good. Um, but yeah, I'm going to move it on just because we're we're running out of time, and we did want to cover one bit of news um, before we finish, which is uh, Ericsson's quarterlies. So I'm just going to remind myself. In fact, I might hand over to you, Ian, largely. But mm. my my top line take on it, I think my headline was um, my headline was probably a bit more downbeat than they'd like. But I said. Ericsson Q4 numbers flat again, shares down again. Yeah. That's what I said. I, I like well, to talk about shares. It's a bit clickbaity, but I think it is relevant because it talks about the market reaction. Their sales were flat organically. Yeah. But their profits were down sharply, their net income. Yeah, so I suppose you could say I was being nice by just saying flat. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of moving parts this time around because of things that have gone on in the last year. And um, there's all these various one-off charges like... The, the fine, the provision for the fine yep. by the de- Department of Justice, I think, for... Um, and what do you think about that? What do you think about the, the, the sum? The involved? sum's quite small compared exactly, to what that, people that's thought my it would be. If that's all they end up coughing up it's not for their much. second strike... It's, it's, a lot, it's a lot better than people were expecting because I think the first time around it was about a billion and I, I, I can't remember the figure this time. But when you figure second strike, it might be even higher. It's a lot less, yeah. yeah. Um, there's also... Um, they sold an IoT business to a company called Eris. I think that's how it's pronounced in um, in the US. And they um, they got out of some of their cloud uh, deals that were described as subscale. So that was another one-off hit. A- ailing uh, now called cloud software and services, but it's basically the amalgam of what used to yeah. be digital services. And, and I will say, to quickly interrupt on that, Ericsson has been bailing out of shitty contracts for about long five time. plus years i mean this it? is this is the thing is that um i mean one of my th- one of my sort of takeaways from it w- w- was it kind of it kind of shows you know the guy who runs it now boy echo came along and i think did a really good job i think everybody has to has to agree Steady of, ship, of turning a company around that was loss making at the time and that had sort of lost its focus and gone into lots of other areas and he said look let's get rid of some of this stuff 
and let's um, let's drill down on what we've always been known for networks, you know, and do a really good job of that. And 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 there's no doubt now outside China they are the 5G company to be. You know, their market share has gone up from 33%, I think, in 2017 to 39%, a six percentage point increase in a few years is really in the mobile stu- networking stunning. space. Yeah, um, and. You know, it's highly regarded by analysts. They're, they're a really good networks company. Yeah. Um, and and but they're not. They haven't. He hasn't shown that they can sort of diversify into other areas very well. And you know, the I mean, the digital services was there when he came in, and and he that's that was a bit the they have services. struggled to turn yeah. around because. And I think you know, to, to be fair to them, things like standalone five G has taken a lot longer to come along than people are expecting. There's all sorts of reasons for that. That's probably we wouldn't want to go into now. But it's it's just a lot harder to do and I think until they actually see the rollouts happening it's hard for them to record revenues from that so you know and they, and they still seem to have this issue with um, uh, unprofitability contracts that, that yeah. you know that aren't there's a lot of lot more talk about automation and cost savings. You know, they brought these two businesses together, managed services and digital services which sounds like a good move because there's quite a lot of overlap between those things now. Maybe that can you know, they're optimistic about being break even by the end of the year, but they've been saying that for quite a long time, as, as far as I recall. So this, this is the, the sort of cloud services. Yeah, division. yeah, yeah. I mean, getting out of IoT, I don't think really is. A, a, it, you know, I can see why they wanted to sell it. They couldn't. They didn't make, manage to make a success of it. But then you think, well, you know, they. It doesn't say a lot for diversification, does it? You know, they've gone. You know, they've gone and spent a huge amount of money on on Vonage, and people are really quite sceptical about them being able to make a. But that's their that. big and diversification play now, isn't it? That's that is now their big diversification play. But it's like, well, they got out of the edge. You know, they got out of IoT. You know, why why are they necessarily in a good position to be a kind of platform player, um, which is what they see themselves being with with Vonage? You know, sort of having this uh, role in API development for five G applications that positions them as a good sort of platforms company in the future. And, mm. and there's a huge amount of analyst scepticism about whether they're able to do that. And there's a lot of competition and other companies that want to do similar things. So. The jury's out. While all this has been happening, if you look at the interesting thing is looking at where the revenues are coming from. You know, they used to be about half of what they made came from networks back when Ecom took over. You know, okay, they were loss making and everything. They're now they they get seventy percent of their revenues from networks, which is, you know, if something goes wrong with the networks market, it's it's worse obviously if you're heavily dependent on that market and your other interests aren't performing as well. And and the bad news at the moment is we had a really good year last year for the RAN market. I think it's up about it was up about five percent according to um, what's it called the Swedish company Deloro. According to Deloro, um, are they Swedish? I think they're Swedish oh. Deloro. I think they are. Okay, but they're the ones that Ericsson uses anyway. Yeah, yeah. Trusts for its. And I its think data. most most people, with all due respect to our colleagues at Omdia, uh, for pure like networking market sizing yeah they're, te- they're quite well, I, highly I regarded Omdi's pretty good and i, I suspect okay. Omdi says a similar thing Sorry, I, I suspect they, they'd have a similar like they it grew last year but the projection this year is that it's going to shrink by about one percent and yeah and the, and, the, and the thing is if you look below the headline drop of one percent which I, I talked to um frederick yedling about uh, who's the head of networks on the, on the phone earlier today. Early yeah, yeah. Uh, but you look and that doesn't sound that bad but you look below that in north america which is where Ericsson makes 30% of its revenues, that market's projected to drop 7% this year. Wow. You know, a lot of operators are having spent quite a lot of money in the last couple of years. And it's not surprising that it's happening. You know, we're in a, 
not a good position um, economically. You know, there's worries about recession. Everybody's yeah. dealing with the and cost every of day. Like prices. today, we had a story about um, Google laying off loads of people. Yeah. Earlier on this week, Microsoft laying off loads of people. Yeah, there's exactly. obviously a lot of retrenchment. There's going a lot on of retrenchment. Uh, you know, we just talked about energy. Energy prices are rising um, for obvious reasons, and you know, it's it's tough times. So you can see operators are thinking about ways of you know ways of making cuts basically and and it and it's and the projection is that there will be the next two quarters will be quite a sort of um tough one for or spending or spending spending at the same level but spending it more slowly taking a 10-year rollout and making it a 15-year rollout or whatever exactly yeah well that's like so no i'm more or less finished okay because um that's an interesting point isn't it um back to the whole what's the point of 5g thing Mm. um and obviously there is a point, you know, I think, and we're hopefully going to soon have a guest um, who we're going to talk um, to about 6G. And and one of the things I'll, I will seek to challenge them on is, you know, is there a point of it? Like we've had it in the past. I don't know if it was like Neil McRae or whatever, just questioning the need for another G. But what no one questions is that is, if not the need, the inevitability of technological progress. <coughs> obviously, you're going to want to be able to do things a bit better next year than you could this year or, or more cheaply or more efficiently or whatever, as we've been speaking about. So there will be, you know, 5G will evolve. Maybe someone will say, I put 5G in, I have to slap them. <laughs> those, those little, Five and a half. Those little decimal points of Gs really wind me up. And then there will be a 6G, but I think, we, I think all of us know enough to know that there's not a clear reflection point where you suddenly go from one G to another. It's, it's a sort of gradual evolution, as, as technology should be, because it's down to R&D effort and all that sort of thing. Uh, most of you know, pretty much everyone's switched, switched off their 1G and 2G networks, and a lot of them are switching off their 3G networks yeah. as we speak, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, you, you'll, you'll soon only see 4G or 5G on your phone. So. Indeed, although I noticed on my phone on the way down, it's still um, reverting back to H+, once or twice. Mm. Bless it. Really? Yeah, yeah. I don't. I mean, I rarely see it off 4G nowadays, yeah, but I, like I don't it. see it on 5G. I get very H plus. Much. I get H plus more often than I'm happy with. And also, wow. it's not even H plus. I remember H plus back when that was a big deal. It feels slower now. Maybe it's just relative because I'm used to 4G. Uh, it's probably because you live in the back of beyond. Well, it's on the way down actually. Within Hitchin, it's fine, but there are some. It's not stages good on train on lines because the... they can't build their mast high enough. Well, that's probably it. There's some stages on the train, and I know this is a massive first world problem. But I yeah. normally work when I'm on the train, yeah. and and I normally um, tether off my phone yeah. for the for the network. You don't use the Wi-Fi on the train. No, no. <laughs> Funnily enough, enough. <laughs> um, it's a, it is a bit hit and miss, isn't it? Yeah, I just yeah. I can't even be bothered to try and go there. If only because I think the interface will probably be annoying. It'd take me about half an hour to get on the fucking thing if it's any good in the first yeah, place. GWRs is fine. You just click. I accept your terms and conditions, and you're on. Right. Well, this is but, Thames, yeah. It, this it, is does, Thames it does drop in and out a little bit. Perhaps you're using better trains. Um, yeah, go on. Um, anyway, the what was the point I was trying to make? Can't remember now. I completely lost it. Um, yeah, I think I think it, it was just the inevitability of the progress, and, and, and just to refer it back to Ericsson, but maybe in a form where we can keep it sort of company agnostic for you, Colin. Um, we seem to have already got, judging from these results, to a point in the 5G investment cycle, and mm. you were just touching on maybe it's just an extension of it, um, where it's slowing down, and when we got Deloro forecasting a, a slight decline, I mean, well, I mean, I mean, most of, most of the operators are rolling out 5G in in kind of you know urban or semi at least semi-urban areas, big cities, larger towns, and you know to a certain extent they've covered them. Yeah. And, um, you know, the question is now, is the business case there to, to roll it out into you rural you, you, you just got a 5G phone. How often do you get a 5G signal? 
In, if I'm in, if I'm in a town centre or in a city yeah. centre, pretty, pretty, pretty consistently. But now. a full rollout, surely you'd get it constantly, wouldn't you? Yeah, but not, but not in a rural area. Not where it, you know, I mean, I, I live in a pretty rural area south of Newbury, so it's. But you uh, get four G. Yeah, yeah, I can get four G where I live, and that, and that's what you kind of get is these islands of five G in a in a sea of four G. But, but is, is but, this what we accept? Sorry, just one more thing, and I'll shut up. Um, is this what we accept about five G? Is that for the foreseeable future, it's only ever going to be. In, in a sort of conurbation, in a sort of maybe, dense that, maybe that's the maybe that's the. But why, why would you? Because I, I can see, you know, exactly to what Colin was talking about earlier. That if the, you know, if, if there's not the, the the big difference on your smartphone, mm. you know, you're using it as an average consumer, and doing the same applications that you would on a 4G connection. I mean, I. I don't really notice the difference between 4G and 5G. In fact, sometimes I'd rather be on 4G because the 5G can be sort of well, you get backwards and forwards and using a well. battery. So, why would an operator who knows that think this is money we should good money we should spend in rural areas to roll out? They, you know, they've done it in far, in city centres because there's more usage there. I suspect it's almost more of a kind of self-interest thing, get some capacity onto yeah. a new network and, and deal with that particular issue. And then they can also market the fact that they have some 5G coverage in big population centres. But to do it in, you know, in uh, Whipsnade or something <clears throat> isn't really worth it. And, so, but that um, does beg the question, <clears throat> the recurring question of this discussion of what is the point of 5G? Is the point of 5G just for capacity in very sort of high footfall, high well, maybe dense Well, maybe from a consumer perspective at the moment. Yeah. yeah. But that doesn't mean it always will be. I mean, it is a completely different architecture from the, from the operator's perspective. It is, you know, much more virtualized and much more there's open interfaces between all of the all of the different uh, the different elements of the network, which means that you can potentially take best-of-breed vendors to do different bits of it. And this is what the whole ORAN concept is about, is how you can break all of the you know, most most RAN networks today are built single vendor, and I yep. think um, you know, opening all those up and, and potentially introducing um, you know multi-vendor networks in the RAN is, is is an interesting concept. I suspect what will probably happen in the in the long term is that people will build ORAN compliant networks, but there'll be single vendor ORAN compliant yeah, that's networks exactly where there'll be all these nice open interfaces between. <laughs> The vendor you were talking about a minute ago is different components in the network, and it will be a single vendor ORAN. So it will be open, but it will be single vendor open. Yeah. So I suspect that's, that's what will happen. Um, but I mean, it is a different architecture, and it, it, it lends itself to things like network slicing, which which you can't do with 4G. Mm. Um, it, it it lends itself much more easily to integrate various applications into it. So it it is a different architecture. So but it sort of sets the the groundwork for this sort of flexibility for future use cases. So maybe where I'm being sceptical and going, what's the point of it? Um, the point of it, and and back to the killer app cliche. Mm. The point of it might not be manifested now, but we're laying the groundwork for all sorts of future use cases and killer but, apps that, but we've, that have but we've not come. even seen you know that point about standalone we've not even seen the rollout of that yet and that in itself is supposed to move things along quite yeah. a lot in terms of capabilities and there's not been a lot of a lot of the stuff in the in the business market that relates to that hasn't been seen necessarily yet so i mean i'm trying to play on, yep. the, on their side you know and no, no, from, totally. their, from their perspective you know, I know what Ericsson said this morning is their view is that this is kind of like a valley that the industry has to go through before it sort of starts climbing again. You get you get through this dip, eventually traffic's going to go up, so they're going to have to make investments for capacity reasons, not just coverage. You know, and then and then presumably there will be this sort of wave of investment that happens that's more to do with um, enterprise stuff, and um, which is what they're banking on with which is what they're banking yeah. on, and part part of Vonage is 
yeah, it's kind of partly to do with that. I mean, it's like the other side of it. Well, that's why they've created a whole division. They've now got three main reporting divisions, mobile networks, cloud software and services, which is basically all the non-mobile network shit. Every every division's loss-making except for networks. Yeah. And then, yeah, enterprise was up, but that that was wasn't organic because that was the acquisition. It was, it was of acquisition of Vonage. And the interesting thing is how, like, the acquisition of Vonage made a massive difference difference to sales, but they still racked you know racked up quite a big loss, which they blamed to some extent on the divestment of this IoT unit. Right. Um, you know, they've got they've got three. I mean, others almost insignificant. That other unit, you know, it's like the well, they didn't even put it on the, the Siberia. I, I do of screenshots of their um, their PowerPoint uh, presentation. Yeah, and they with segment summary, they didn't even bother. I mean, there's the really others. three, but the two yeah. big ones that the, um, aren't, aren't networks, um, cloud basically, yeah. and, and and enterprise are both loss making, and uh, you know, people are going to be more sympathetic maybe on the enterprise side because it's quite new and and you know there's a story there and let's give them time and let's see them prove it but i know a lot of analysts would be quite frustrated by what's happened with the two units that are now yeah. cloud because and we've it, had um, one story this week uh, there's a activist investor group called Sevian. oh yeah them again bought a bigger stake did they i didn't even i missed that one yeah yeah well it's just, they bought yeah. a bigger stake and um and boyer was over in in davos doing a bit of skiing with the <laughs> with the oligarchs um, and uh, were the oligarchs invited? Oligarchs, that's what it's all about. Is okay. Davos, Davos, <laughs> oligarch fest. As long as they're the right oligarchs, it's like a it's like a music festival for oligarchs and politicians. Um, if you're in the olive oil business, are you an oligarch? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. But tell your dad. You're uh, getting good at dad jokes. Um, anyway, he was there, and I, I didn't report on it, but. It, he he did one or two reports and uh, one or two uh, interviews with like mainstream media, and he was asked about this Sevian, and he was very sort of diplomatic. He goes, "Yes, we welcome new inputs," but basically, you know, what it's like like when you've been reporting about things like when we've been reporting about things like Tim in the past, or when people like um, Elliot yeah. have got involved. When you get an active investor, activist investor involved, it does shake things the fuck up. Yeah, and and Sevian's one of those. Places and they're, and they're definitely rattling the cage a little bit, and other investors and their share price keeps going down. Well, it went down eight percent when they opened this morning. It's a yeah, big and then it was about five percent when I was writing it. But it's still another yeah. big drop. They're not that far. This is the thing: is like they're not that far off where they were when he came in. Now, yeah, which is a bit awkward. You know, it, their share price is like a, a sort of hump. You can you give know, him a little um, bit of a pass because all shares have been down the toilet. Yeah, this totally. Year. Um, but yeah. Do you, I mean, just drawing a line under it, you know, I'm not an equity analyst, obviously, um, or I'd be earning a lot more money. Um, but I, what do they want them to do? What do people like CV and, and, and other investors who are driving down the share price, what do they want them to do? Um, streamline more? Well, it might have been to do with the outlook, because the, yeah. the outlook for Q1 was quite gloomy. And apparently, the mar- one of the reasons the margins are being hit is, obviously, they have um, a cost of... Um, you know, a cost issue, like everybody does, has a cost issue because of energy costs and wages and Inflation things like that that you stuff, can't help. Yeah. But they also, when they... It's like a two-sided thing. They they have carried on growing their market share and they picked up quite a lot of work in India recently. Yeah, although and that's what you, they wanted to flag up to offset the But there's a North downside America. to picking up work in India or right. picking up any work new, which is in the early stages of a project, you tend to have to do a lot more services-related work and it's very margin-dilutive at first. Okay. So um, that's one of the reasons why there's this kind of slightly sort of bleak Q1 outlook. And 
investors, t- markets tend to react to things like that and not think about the longer term, don't they? So they, I think that's yeah. possibly one of the reasons why it so went down. So that's another thing. Maybe, maybe I can throw this at you, Colin, um, but feel free if it's if it's not something that you want to sort of have a public position on. But like going into this year, um, it's generally assumed that there's going to be some kind of global recession. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't don't know if, think I don't know if it's a global recession. Is it some countries in recession, some countries not? Yeah, I suppose it depends how you define a global recession. Well, like you'd a, have the overall yeah, you know, yeah. aggregate aggregate. I don't think I don't know if there is a, right, a the, general. Well, the West is expected to be in some kind of recession. Well, I know Europe is, but I'm not sure about the US. Oh, I think. Well, anyway, maybe. Anyway. Um, let's let's just stick with Europe then. Yeah, sure. Um, some kind of recession. Um, some kind of general, let's say, downturn, weakness, certainly. Or yeah. softness, or, or whatever. And and I think. You know, we've said we just stick with Europe, but I think the Amer- big tech America is quite a good barometer, and Microsoft and Google and whatever keep saying, "Yeah, we're going to have to lay loads of people off." Even though they're still racking up massive profits, and yeah, know, but they're that, not really that badly. No, off. No, that's fine. And morally, there, there's some questions about that, but practically, you know, clever people get ahead of the game, the, um, and they lay people off. And, and they're quite happy to take the one-off hit because when you're a public company, you take a one-off hit, your shares wobble that day, and then you can blow. Billions of dollars on one-off hits. Well, the interesting thing about, about the big tech layoffs that are happening and these big numbers that are getting thrown out is they'll still be a lot, lot bigger than they were even just before the pandemic no, started. That's a really good point. They've taken yeah. on so many employees; it's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, the last they, two years. a lot of them are talking about five percent. You know, that's not yeah. that's not it's not scary. It's just it, when you put it in it's yeah. individuals, it's not a structural change. Five five percent of your employees is you know. Yeah. What you would expect to to, yeah. le- to leave your company anyway in any any given year, a five percent attrition rate is not is not unusual. Yeah, but yeah, doing doing it uh, involuntarily is, is is obviously really bad for those people who are in, who are in, impacted by but it. Yeah. I remember looking at Microsoft, which was early, earlier in the week, and I looked at their numbers pre pre um, pandemic, and it's they're they're sort of forty or fifty thousand people up. So even after this ten thousand cut, they're still <coughs> massively bigger in terms of employee well, the, numbers. I mean, the, the pandemic itself was brilliant for big tech. <laughs> I, I don't know if you've got a view, Colin, on what it was like for the telecoms industry on the whole. But basically, everyone was at home. Yeah, doing I mean, the video I mean, conferencing I mean, that we, we're talking about. You know, uh, we, we can only talk about our, our publicly um, uh, public results. But yeah, we, we we've seen a we've seen a massive. Uh, investment cycle from our service providers across Europe to to match that because yeah. yeah we did see a huge amount of of impact of network traffic from people working from home um so you know we did see we did see significant impact we also obviously had some issues with the supply chain which which meant that all you know a lot of te- technology companies that have hardware related businesses saw huge increases in lead times i mean that's, Is that's things like secret. chip recruitment yeah, because of, that, because the global I shouldn't try to say procurement when I've had a few beers. That's that's the other reason for the uh, spending cuts, by the way, by five G customers of Ericsson, is that there was a lot of stockpiling of uh, of inventory right. during the when the, the supplies were tight. People were thing. trying to build up um, inventory, and now they're trying to wind it wind down those levels and, and not spend. So that's that was one of the other factors that mm-hmm. I didn't mention in my little summary. Fair enough. And certainly, a lot of our SPs, you know, have now starting to see a lot of that that product that they ordered come through and they're deploying it so and they're also obviously seeing from the from the the demand side you know they're seeing a macroeconomic situation affecting subscribers willingness to you know pay for extra services or upgrade their services and things like that so yeah there's there's definitely an impact from the macroeconomic climate in Mm. in the spending patterns of service providers um 
you know th- that, but, that that is that is definitely definitely the case but you'd still like the fundamentals are still good though in in terms of the long term because it's like the questions always get raised on the chip side about this you know, it's, it really goes up and down, doesn't it? Yep. You get a you get a you get a shortage, and then it turns into a glut, and everybody's now saying, "Oh, they've overinvested in all these fabs that are getting built. We don't need them." But the long-term view is that if we get into the late 2020s and a lot of this edge stuff takes off, and we yep. are using new types of device, then there will be a, a need for a, a lot a lot more semiconductors than we've ever used in the past. I'm guessing. Yeah, and I mean, and don't forget, the semiconductor industry has, has, has fundamentally moved from you know old technologies to new technologies in terms of you know moving from you know twenty eight nanometer to seven nanometer and five nanometer, and that that requires kind of different uh, different manufacturing facilities to build that that stuff. Yeah. Um, which which means that they're typically new facilities which they've had to build. And they are multi-billion-dollar investments, and take you know five years to come. And there's a massive geopolitical land grab over that, where where people want to diversify away from the Far East because mm-hmm. they're worried about China having a go at Taiwan or something like that. Um, so I, one gut feel that I get about yeah, you know, most people seem to reckon like so like back to Ericsson that they in their outlook they were going, don't get your hopes up about the first quarter or two of next year, weren't they? This year. To paraphrase. Yeah, sorry, yeah, this year. Yeah. First half is supposed yeah, to be yeah. up. Yeah. First half of 2023. Yeah. Um, and maybe that applies more generally, but maybe one of the reasons is not a general economic softness, but but a recalibration. Because one thing I always thought, from my sort of dilettante understanding of macroeconomics, when you have a, a global shock like the pandemic, mm-hmm. where you just had entire, not just countries, but regions just economically halving their output or whatever because no one could leave the fucking house um, and and you just weren't allowed to do anything with about 12 masks on and all that sort of thing um, uh, I'm still butthurt about last year's Mobile World Congress I think for that I, used to, I was getting bollocked by little teenage security guards for not wearing my mask enough they were a bit overly rigorous on yeah. the mask stuff you can if they do it this year you can scratch your, your yeah you do you know, know what I mean without, without someone, someone launching themselves at you <laughs> If they do it this year, there's going to be issues. Yeah. Anyway, um, so so obviously you have you have normal macroeconomic cycles. You have some degree of boom and bust, but then you get an exceptional event like the pandemic, which kind of resets things a little bit. Mm. And so maybe, and and there was a weird, there was sort of almost perverse boom on the back of it, especially in what we we're just talking about, big tech networking that sort of thing, because everyone was at home, and. And then there's the and then there's the supply chain stuff, which isn't just the pandemic. It's it's the U.S. Um, hostility to China and, and saying that you can't have any chips that have got our our intellectual property in and all that sort of thing. And all of these are exceptional one-off items. So it stands to reason that there will have been unintended consequences like inventory hoarding and all that sort of thing. And some of that might be playing out this year. I guess I'm sort of groping for some optimism with what little investments I have that maybe in the first half of this year it will still be a bit moody and there may be some minor recession you know it's sort of two quarters of minus one or two percent growth but then by the time we get to the end of the, the year it might be better I don't know I'm not going to put you on the spot Colin, and ask you to make predictions about the global economy but you know some of my stream of consciousness wittering you know does, does it make sense do, you, do we think in, in terms of the sort of cyclical nature of of supply chains and economy, some of that makes sense. Are you seeing anything that you can add to that? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, traffic traffic growth continues. I mean, I said at the beginning that, that you know that slowed down a lot, but the traffic growth definitely continues. Um, you know, particularly outside of mature markets. Um, you know, we, we we see we see massive traffic growth in some of the some of the developing markets still. Um, you know, as people start to use things in those markets that you know we've we've kind of been using for many years in in mature markets. So, I think the traffic growth will continue, and as traffic growth continues. Um, people move towards more digitalization types of solutions, whether that be, you know, in their personal lives through retail or whether it's, you know, from, from business application use. I think that will always, always drive positive momentum. I mean, you'll always see peaks and troughs in everything, but, you know, I think long, long term, medium to long term, we we definitely still see a very strong growth trajectory for, for the, for the, uh, the telecoms industry. But, you know, I think you and I were talking before the session about, um, you know, whether a voice call is a voice call anymore. Mm. And really, you know, everything's data these days. Even yeah. a voice call is a, is, a, is a data application. So I think, you know, fundamentally, you know, that, that, will, that will continue. You know, every th- the, the network that supports all of these applications will continue to grow. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, that, that, that direction of travel seems um, beyond dispute. I mean, the question is: Can we find the applic- the applications to really use that use that growth? Um, and that that's really, you know, maybe yeah, the thing which that we're is where for at the we're moment. always getting this incoming stuff about VR, AR, all that sort of thing. I think it's still not obvious. I think one thing I've one thing I've learned from this chat is to view five G. It's perhaps be a bit more patient mm. about it. Um, you know, you're talking about don't how it's be a too whole... patient though, otherwise six G will come along again. But then, but you know, like. Colin explaining how it's a whole new architecture um, in terms of you know enabling all sorts of other things that are, that are not very exciting but but they're sort of plumbing things as I call them behind the scenes but that but it sort of lays the groundwork just like I don't know um, maybe you know we talk about um, the the odd generation being where they sort of start stuff and the even generation being where they refine it and, and that might not bear out we're only on to five for fuck's sake so you can't over extrapolate that <coughs> but like 3g was was the start of, of mobile broadband but it was a bit shit and with 4g it's really decent you know maybe 5g is to start something that i can't even articulate or put my finger on right now and then with 6g that'll be really decent but it'll probably be more i don't know i don't know what if you think i'm barking at the right tree here colin it'd be more to do with the, the sort of ubiquitous connectivity mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it'll be these heads-up displays where I can see that you're an Everton fan just by chatting to you with my glasses <laughs> on, or something like that. You can tell by I'm crying. That's why. <laughs> um, but uh, no, it's uh, you know this thing we call enhanced mobile broadband, which was you know the move from 3G to 4G to 5G. Uh, you know I think you could you could if you had decent 5G connectivity and you were in a, a town centre or a, or a city centre, you know the the urban area of a city, you could probably use 5G for your for your base for your full broadband connection. Now I think that's perfectly viable thing to do. You know you can get pretty decent performance from it. Um, you know and that but that's just we call that in, enhanced mobile broadband. Um, and that, that coverage that coverage could could be you know fairly ubiquitous. Although in in most of those locations you've also got access to kit to you know cable cable from cable providers, or you've got access to fiber to the building, or you've got access to, to DSL as well. Yeah, and you know all of well, those that- will deliver similar performance. Maybe not the DSL piece, but the other two uh, will, will give you that similar kind of performance. But in 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 rural and, and non-urban areas, you know maybe maybe we still we still need our our um our dsl yeah and i was doing a i think i was doing a 
like a video interview, so it was a commercial thing, so I won't mention who it was. But it came up just in the chit chat of um, I've been uh, I've been at press events like telecoms or, or tech press events um, where the Wi-Fi was shit, and everyone always reflects like how ironic that is. <laughs> um, and it could get to a point, you know, in Wi-Fi for whatever reason, maybe the, maybe the money's not there, or maybe the 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 spectrum's not there, or whatever. Wi-Fi Wi-Fi is adequate at home. But it, it it's never been adequate in in sort of dense environments in, in my anecdotal experience, and maybe we're getting to a point where where five G and, and mobile um, connectivity will basically supersede Wi Fi, and Wi Fi people will stop even bothering in dense environments. Yeah, I, I would I would strongly disagree with that. I mean, oh. you know, you I think well, Wi Fi. your areas. There. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean. I'm not actually in the Wi-Fi part of what Juniper okay. does, but Juniper has a you know a Wi-Fi solution that 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 uses AI to actually determine where there are bad coverage spots and manages to you know to point the network operator to how to how to fix those, and is is very proactive in its use of AI to actually look at those. So you don't know where coverage. I've been, but anecdotally, why do but you think blue, I've had negative experiences? Well, there's a blue, there's you know you can you can actually use the the Bluetooth uh, beacon on your on your phone to kind of work out where you are in the building as a user. And actually monitor your 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 Wi-Fi performance, but yeah, I mean we we. So you're saying that my experience has been shit because the people haven't bought enough Juniper stuff. <laughs> no, well, because you know, uh, Wi-Fi Wi-Fi performance is, is dependent on a number of different things where you put the the access points in the building and things like that. But, but you know, we we've we've done a huge good of, yeah or bad in the same way that five G is good or bad depending mm, on the investments. That's yeah, made. I'm, I'm I mean, totally, you, being totally anecdotal. You can you can have. I'm sure your Wi-Fi can connection at home you'd think is pretty damn reliable and yeah, yeah. never really have any problems with it uh whereas he, and he probably stood in some bits of london and gone this is i'm supposed to be on 5g this is bloody awful so it's yeah I, it's all to do yeah with... I, I was just groping around to wonder whether maybe 5g when, when it when it fully um when we get the, the sort of full fat version of it yeah whether it's going to end up being better in dense environments so there's also an argument that maybe we don't need 5g because of wi-fi you hear that voice but that's what i'm well. saying yeah. in dense environments wi-fi anecdotally for me has still been a bit rubbish i'm sure there are all sorts of reasons why and i'm sure it's not intrinsic an intrinsic failing in the technology underlying well, wi-fi i know if i'm sitting inside in a cafe if i'm at cafe nero or whatever it might be and i'm working there um, I would definitely not do tethering. I'd much rather be on a Wi-Fi yeah. connection because you're probably not going to get to the good coverage in it. But that could anyway, be because the Cafe Nero people know that a lot of their revenue comes from people who come in there yeah. to work. So they've made sure that their and even better is if system you're at a, is good. A, a pub which has got its own sort of dedicated, you know, you know, and they give you the password and you get on it, and you're the one person in the pub using it, and you can, you know, you can get something and done. You're laughing. Because you're in there at eleven o'clock because you're an alcoholic. And you're also drinking a beer rather than a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think the two the two uh, the two technologies are absolutely complementary. I mean, obviously the key difference is that Wi-Fi is running in in, uh, in in open spectrum in 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 unregulated spectrum, whereas you know five G is in regulated spectrum. I mean, we are seeing a lot of rollout of pri- private five G networks now, where and and I suspect most of those will be delivered by network operators in, in the most yeah. part. Um, where they might be delivering them to an industrial location, you know, a factory, or to, you know, the classic one you see in the in the press is the example of the British Ports Authority rolling out private 5G yes, as a I way to provide one. coverage there. One because it, it, in those kind of environments, it's very difficult to get Wi-Fi to cover properly, but also because you know they're worried about you know somebody blocking or or interfering with their 
with with the uh, the open spectrum they're using for Wi-Fi. But I mean, wi- Wi-Fi inside you know uh, office buildings and corporate <coughs> environments like this can be extremely yeah. uh, effective coverage, yeah, particularly it, if now. you if you you know if if you roll it out correctly. Yeah. Um, then uh, then it, then it can can provide a really really good coverage experience. I mean, you know, the kind of public Wi-Fi thing you're talking about there, where you're on a hotspot in a coffee shop, is it's a bit of a hit and miss I, experience. I, although sometimes. some of them I do find very good, mm. and they work very well. It's it, like you said, yeah, it is totally hit and miss. Some of them are awful, and some and it's not even worth bothering. And half with, the time they want you to do it to a keep you in the coffee shop and b to capture yeah. your your, your I mean, contact the, information. The train ones are really bad, but I suspect mm. that's to do with certain other challenges as well of of moving. Yeah, they're probably using and, they're probably <laughs> using a five G uplink to, tr- to yeah. from from the yeah, Wi Fi yeah. inside the train back to the network anyway. Yeah, or a four G, or even four G. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. Um, I think we we sort of were, were there any last things either of you two wanted to flag up? I think we're good no. time wise that we're done. I think I think that was really interesting. It was because um, you know your area of expertise, Colin, and, and your company's area covers so much. It was an interesting thing coming into it to work out. You know, it's, it's not like where we got someone like last week where um, Rosalind's thing was very clearly defined, and we just went into that. This has been a more sort of general um, telecoms thing, but it's been really educational for me, and I, I think we covered a lot of thank stuff. You know, I've enjoyed our chat. Yeah, cool. Well, thanks and a lot. Beer. Thank and you the beer. And the beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks a lot for coming in. It's great to meet you. You're very welcome. Okay, so we'll wrap it up there. Um, I hope you enjoyed it, and make sure you join us for the next one. <laughs>